areas. If, if just you can just indicate, but I can say majority of members are in uh, Mr. Sakaza. I would appreciate if you can uh, take us through who is in, in terms of people, uh, companies or persons or a person who is going, going to uh, make a presentation. Uh, I'll hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson, and good morning to my members and uh, the guests and the departmental officials that are around with us. Uh, Chair, we have today, the following members have just um, logged in. We've got the Honorable Chairperson, we've got Honorable Ngabani, Honorable Nonsele, Honorable Zuma, Honorable Yinana, Honorable Kado, Honorable Begram, Honorable Denner, that's what we have now for now, Chair, from the members of the Portfolio Committee. And Chair, from the support staff, we've got myself, Koshia, Sibongseni Ngobo, Temuho Mukwena, Sibongile Maputi. Chair, from the presenters today, as per our program, Chair, the first to present is supposed to be a Occupational Therapy Association of South Africa, or TASA, I see Dr. Pet Devet is here. Uh, I'm sure she's got her own uh, team. And then that will be followed by Comsol, followed by Socioeconomic Rights Institute, SERI, followed by COSADU, and lastly, it will be Solidarity. Chair, we will see as, they, as we go if they are coming in. But I see the first uh, presenters are here, Chair. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Sakaza. We will then, uh, any person from the department? Is there any person from the department? Oh, I see. Thank you, Chair. Um, um, Virgil will join us a little bit late. We've got Commissioner of Yomafata and uh, uh, on the line, Paula Ngamani, representing the department. Okay. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Mkalipi. We will then uh, invite the, the first person to, to, to submit. Can I again, just for housekeeping, request members to mute a person that is going to make a submission must show his or her face uh yeah we will uh, because these these proceedings are live so the it and the meet and the parliamentary media uh, uh, the channel would also is, is is humbly requesting that we we show our faces i will hand over to the to the first presenter thank you very much over to you Mr. Sakaza. Chair, uh, Dr. Pet Devet is here and I've made her co-host. I'm sure she's trying to, to share. There, there she goes. Chair. Oh, there she is. Uh, thank you, Doc. Good, good morning, honorable members. Um, I have a number of people on my team and we're going to do a presentation. 
starting with Mr. Alvin Williams. So I wonder if you could please allow him to start to show his presentation. Thank you. If you say a number of people to present, all of you are going to present or there's only one person who's going to present and the others will respond to questions. Can I just get that clarity? So we have a, we have a PowerPoint presentation and we get, there are three of us that are going to talk to it. Um, if you have a look now, and then we've got people, we, then we will answer questions. Oh, okay. So um, let me just see the uh, Natalie Powell. Um, she's the third person who's going to present. Okay, as long as they will then be able to show their faces. No, we shall do that. Okay. All right. I will hand over to you. Okay. Mr. Williams is going to start. Good morning, Honourable Chairperson Lindelwa, Dunjwa, and Honourable Members. On behalf of the Occupational Therapy Association, we'd like to firstly thank you for this opportunity to address the Parliamentary Committee. Um, as Professor DeWitt said, we'll be sharing the responsibility of presenting to you this morning. We have Professor Pat DeWitt, the President of the Occupational Therapy Association, myself, Alvin Williams, the Vice President for Policy and Strategic Development, and then two of our colleagues, Natalie Powell and Liandi Richter, who are both occupational therapists and technical experts in the field of work rehabilitation and return to work. Are you able to see my screen? Yes, we're able to see your screen. You may continue. Thank you. So the outline of this morning's address, we'll be looking at um, the Occupational Therapy Association of South Africa and occupational therapy and specifically what it is that occupational therapist does in relation to the COID Amendment Bill we also are going to look at specific comments on the COID Amendment Bill, and then we would like to offer some recommendations and concluding remarks. So to kickstart us with this morning's presentation, we'd like to contextualize what OTASA or the Occupational Therapy Association of South Africa is. So OTASA is the only um, legitimized, recognized um, professional member association that speaks for occupational therapists in South Africa. We are also a member of the World Federation of Occupational um, Therapists. And in South Africa, we are a registered NPO. Our broad vision is to really support, promote, represent, and advocate for occupational therapy as a key element of health service provision in South Africa. In order to do this, we have a very bold mission, and that is to strategically position the profession as an integral, evidence-based and relevant force in meeting the health and occupational needs of all South African citizens, and recognizing that this can only be achieved in concert with stakeholders and the public. So, to date, we have a national membership of just under 4,000 occupational therapists registered in South Africa. 
Our executive structure, we have eight elected seats, which make up our national executive structure. We are then also managed by a, a board or what we would call a council. And um, as in many organizations, the executive is largely responsible for the operational functioning and the strategic direction of the association, while the board or the council provides the executive oversight. So what is this curious profession of occupational therapy? A disclaimer here that we are often confused with physiotherapy, much to our um, disappointment and dismay. But if we had to very simply articulate what it is that we are concerned with, we are a health profession, a health profession. In other words, we are registered and regulated by a council. And our concern here is to really help persons with and without disability across their lifespan to participate in those things that they want and that they need to do through the therapeutic use of daily occupations or daily activities. Now, it's important to also note that in, in our professional space, occupations we refer to as not just paid labor. These are all these activities that we want to do, that we need to do, and that adds meaning and purpose to our life and that contributes to our health and well-being. So some of the treatment modalities or interventions that we are involved with as occupational therapists include helping children with disabilities to participate fully in school, to be able to engage in developmentally appropriate play and social activities. As we know that play and socializing is such an important task for children because this is how they learn. We are also concerned with injury rehabilitation, whether this be due to an injury at a workplace um, or an injury due to a, a traumatic um, you know, event or whether it is due to a, 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 a disease um, or disabling condition. And we also provide support to older adults who are experiencing physical and cognitive changes. So with this very simple definition, we can see that we are involved with persons across the lifespan and that we are really looking at enabling people to do these activities and occupations that are important for them and that they want to do. So to further just strengthen this um, definition or concept of occupation and what it is that we do, we want to just play a short insert for you that hopefully will bring this, this concept a little bit more closer to you. We all have life goals, things we need and want to do. Sometimes things get in the way of our goals. Life events can make our goal seem impossible. I love gardening, but it's difficult because I have arthritis. I want to drive my car, but I couldn't after my stroke. I need to find a job, but it's been challenging since being diagnosed with schizophrenia. I want to make new friends, but it's hard because I have autism. I need to get dressed in the morning, but I just had a hip replacement and can't bend forward. 
I have difficulty managing my responsibilities because of my anxiety disorder. I haven't been able to ride my bicycle since I had a brain injury. I need to do my grocery shopping, but it's difficult to remember when I have dementia. It's tough to care for my baby because of my carpal tunnel syndrome. I need to walk my dog, but I have multiple sclerosis. I want to learn the guitar, but my right arm is amputated. I had a spinal cord injury, but I want to live on my own. My occupational therapist helped me to achieve this goal. Occupational therapists help people to find the tools and strategies they need to overcome barriers such as illness and disability and reach their goals. Now I live on my own. I'm learning the guitar. I can walk my dog. I can care for my baby again. I am able to do my grocery shopping on my own. I can ride my new special bike. I am working on managing my responsibilities. Now I can dress myself. I'm making new friends. I'm working with my OT to find the right job for me. My OT helped me to drive again. I have a garden now. Because of occupational therapy, So now that brings us to the role of occupational therapy in relation to the compensation fund. So as I said in the previous slide, we are a regulated uh, profession. So we are registered with the Health Professions Council of South Africa as a health profession. And really, occupational therapists are trained to really look at the individual holistically and to address the intersections or the interrelationships between the physical disability or the physical deficit and the impact that it has on the psychosocial well-being of the individual. And then also trained to be able to uh, look at the mental health concerns and how this might impact the individual's ability to perform um, their daily occupations. So broadly speaking, the domain of concern that we really are interested in here is activities of daily living, where the patients can bath, dress, feed themselves, whether they are able to learn, play, participate in educational pursuits, and then also importantly in the context of the COID, to be able to return to meaningful employment, whether it is the original employment or um, an alternative employment, or whether they are able to find meaningful um, and gainful employment. And this all, importantly, is considered in the context of the individual. So no one approach fits all. Every individual case and patient is managed independently. And so the World Federation of Occupational Therapists recognizes that the right of persons with disabilities um, to participate in work-related activities is an important aspect of the role and function of occupational therapists. 
More importantly, in South Africa, the Medical, Dental and Supplementary Health Services Provisions Act also defines the scope of practice of occupational therapy and confirms the profession's role in the provision of services to promote participation in work. And so what, what is the contribution then of occupational therapists to the provision of services for injured workers on duty? So most of the compensation fund clients that are seen by OTs, they actually have physical injuries that are accompanied by various psychosocial and psychological issues that is related to the trauma of being injured, as well as psychological issues related to now having an impairment or a lifelong disability. And so the initial assessment and intervention that occupational therapists are involved in, which would largely focus on the acute injury and the psychological support, and then looking at the long-term outcome in relation to early return to work, and the longitudinal aspects or the longitudinal um, outcome of, of this injury um, and, and um, disability. So the early return to work process forms part of a larger process that we as occupational therapists call the vocational rehabilitation process. And we have to emphasize that this process is really complex and it is progressive. And so the occupational therapist then, together with various stakeholders, will, will and is responsible for really um, walking a journey with the client from the time that the client or the patient is injured on duty until the client is able to successfully integrate into their daily occupations and perform all of those occupations in relation to activities of daily living, education, work, social participation, etc. So we are in, interested in determining the capacity of the injured worker to do their job. And so we want to really, and we do analyze the specific job demands of the injured employer. And then also looking at how the specific job demands matches the capacity of the client or the injured person's capacity to do the original job or an alternative job or to enter into um, a supported employment um, um, environment. We do this through advocating and supporting the employer, the line manager as well, and then the fellow co-workers. And a huge part of what we do is not just working with the individual client that is injured, but also providing reasonable accommodation in relation to what the client might need to do the current job or alternative job in terms of assistive devices, but also looking at reasonable accommodation in the context of adapting the work environment or adapting the work demands. An important part of the vocational rehabilitation process as well is work hardening, where we actually engage the occupational therapist, tailor makes a rehabilitation program to engage the client in a progressive rehabilitation program to enable the client to 
meet the physical demands of possibly returning to, to their job or to an alternative um, employ, uh, uh, employment capacity. And then also to serve as a, as a coach and as a case manager to ensure that all of the issues that might be troubleshooted along this progressive journey of returning to work um, is really managed by a central um, person within the rehabilitation team. So before I end of my part of, of, of my address this morning, I would also just like to, to offer um, honorable members a, a snapshot of the evidence that exists for the role of occupational therapy in relation to return to work, both here in South Africa um, and internationally. And you'll see here that there's um, latest evidence of the role of occupational therapy in return to work with patients with physical disabilities, but then also um, mental health concerns such as major depressive disorders. And then also looking at the role of occupational therapists in both public and private sector. And importantly, if um, honorable members has an opportunity to engage with the slides at a later stage, there are level one evidence um, that shows the outcomes of occupational therapy um, longitudinally. Um, and so these systematic reviews um, would be of interest to members to, to consult. So in closure, there is strong evidence that demonstrates the impact of early intervention by occupational therapists on the return to work outcomes of the persons that we wish to serve. I'm going to hand over now to Professor Patovit to continue with the rest of the presentation. Thank you. Alvin, can so, you have the next slide? Can you give me the next slide, please? There we go. So, honourable members, my component was to just give some comments on the, the, the Compensation for Occupation Injuries and Diseases Amendment Bill. Can I have the next slide, please? So, from um, Mr. Williams' presentation so far, you will obviously um, appreciate that TASA really supports the inclusion and the incentivization of vocational rehabilitation in the bill. This is something that we have been advocating for many years, and um, we really congratulate um, the authors of the bill for doing so. Have the next slide, please. So we are also particularly pleased at the rehabilitation framework that has been presented, which starts with the clinical rehabilitation and the provision of assistive devices for the purposes of physical and psychological recovery, um, and also to reduce disability resulting from any occupational injury or disease. And then secondly, vocational rehabilitation, which is the new component of the bill to assist an employee to maintain employment, to obtain, to maintain, obtain and regain employment and therefore vocational independence and then social rehabilitation. As Mr. Williams has already pointed out, um, this is a complex process and it requires different types of service delivery that require to be included in the offerings of the, uh, of the fund. It also requires different funding and um, just to highlight for you the significant role that occupational therapists play in the achievement of this outcome, I'm going to talk to the next slide.
So if we look at the purple block in the middle, this embodies the um, spirit of the bill, um, which is suitable and sustainable um, employment after injury. And I think that the, um, in order to achieve this, um, we have to have a return to work program. Now, in our experience, a return to work program has considerable needs, considerable planning and coordination and has three steps. So there is the pre return to work component, the return to work transition and the post return to work component as well. So if we go to the top of the block, the red block at the top is part of the pre-return to work um, section, which is the physical rehabilitation and psychosocial um, support that is given to any client that is injured on duty. And um, that is currently part of the offering of the compensation fund. And that will go on, to, on until such time as the occupational therapist thinks that the person is ready for return to work, which brings us to the green block, um, which is the vocational rehabilitation component. And this consists of a functional capacity evaluation and work readiness programs, which um, Mr. Williams referred to. Now, a, function a functional capacity evaluation is a comprehensive assessment which determines the person's work abilities and their fitness to return to work. Um, it also will help the occupational therapist to determine what goals need to be met in any intervention. So to look at what work abilities need to be strengthened which, which may have been lost or interfered with by an injury. It would also look at the person's production speed. If you've had a, uh, if you're disabled, for example, you may not be able to work as fast as you were previously. So, what can be done so that you can work in, at a speed which is considered acceptable in industry? And then also, one generally one has to build up work endurance after an injury or an illness, which is your tolerance to work over a period of time. And these things are um, occur in specific programs, um, which to name a few, there's work hardening programs and also work simulation. But none of this is possible unless an occupational therapist does a work visit. And during such a work visit, they would be do a comprehensive job analysis, which would look particularly at the demands of that particular person relative to the injury or illness that the person has. And then they would go on to an analysis to see if the remaining skills the person has fits the job. And if, not, if um, perhaps one needs to do some job or task redesign or accommodation in order to enable the person to do that. We, we have lost you. Is there somebody? Yes. Um, Madam Chair, can I continue while we wait for Pat, uh, Professor Patova to return? Please. Yeah. So apologies, um, honorable members. Um, Professor 
Devit uh, just stopped short of um, explaining the um, or concluding an expl explanation on the return to work process. Um, and so we've now looked at the um, functional capacity evaluation and return to work programs. And then the, the, the next phase really involves return to work planning and coordination in relation to how do we transition um, the injured worker or, or um, a disabled worker um, back into to, um, suitable employment. So, Pat, you are back. Um, yes, I, I apologize for that. Uh, I had a drop in the internet. So, I, um, Pat, I stopped I at the... Yes, I stopped at the purple block, return to work. Yes, I, I heard that you had completed this. Did you, how far did you get? You yes. can move on, Pat, to, to the next aspect. So if we look at the, um, the next aspect, which is the transition, the, the return to work transition, generally for, um, this is quite a complex process for a disabled person. And very often it re involves revisiting the trauma site. Um, and with that is associated post-traumatic um, issues very often. It also may um, relate to how the person relates to the, the co-workers, ex for example. And um, that would also require some ongoing CAPE ma management um, to ensure that this transition not, is not only successful on day one, but is extended into the next couple of months and that that person is able to carry on with their job and to be successful at that work. Because in the longer term, one doesn't want the person to be boarded if we haven't successfully managed that. And then as Mr. Williams actually mentioned, there is also employer support. So occupational therapists reach out to the employer and line managers to firstly to negotiate any job accommodation that is necessary and to advocate for whatever um, assistive devices or adaptations need to be weighed, but also to provide support to the line managers and to um, peer workers in order to make sure that um, there is a successful social transition into the job and particularly in a country where we have considerable stigma associated with disabilities to help manage that system in order for um, this return to work to be, to be successful. So besides just the vocational rehabilitation, return to work is a much broader concept in which many services are required on an ongoing basis. They're not necessarily services that you do in a half an hour. They very particularly the, the, um, the work um, readiness programs. They're things that have to happen where the patient attends therapy for an extended period of time. It's not a talking intervention, it's a doing intervention where one is actually particularly looking at trying to help the person to use the remaining skills they've got and to compensate for the deficits that they might have. Right, can I have the next slide please? So now another aspect of the bill is that OTASA welcomes the inclusion of domestic workers into the range of employees that may now receive benefits from the compensation fund. 
And from these two issues that we've already um, highlighted, we are assuming that there will be an increase in the number of users requiring services, and there will be an extension of the range and the of services to be delivered in order to fulfill the mandate of this bill. And this in turn will require an increase in the number of occupational therapists that need to be brought into the system. Now we've been reliably informed that currently approximately 4,000 um, compensation clients require occupational therapy treatment in a, in a month. What we haven't been able to determine is exactly the number of occupational therapists that are delivering services. And the reason for that is that many occupational therapists work in group services and their billing system is through a single um, a practice number rather than individually. So we're not quite sure of exactly how many people it involves, except that we do know on, on, on the basis of three surveys we've done in the last year, that the number of, of occupational therapists that are that have been keen to be involved in the with compensation fund patients has declined over the last two years. If I can have the next slide, please. And the reason for this is that there has been considerable problems encountered by occupational therapists in providing services for workers injured on duty related to um, the Comp Easy system. So we've done three surveys, and if you look at the top line, you'll see that of the occupational therapists that we surveyed, approximately 50% of them in each case has not been able to successfully register on the system. And in the last section, that, that of the 50% that weren't, they had tried very hard, but were still not able to do it. Then in the next line, you'll see that in the, the that of the people that have managed to register, quite a number of them find navigating the system extremely difficult, which influences their ability to manage their own practices relative to um, the information that is submitted. Many people have tried to submit claims, but the, um, on, and on some occasions have only received claim numbers for about 50% of about 20% of their claims. And you'll see that the same applies has applied earlier this year. Of um, considerable concern is that the invoices have remained unpaid since about September 2019, which is when the Comp Easy system was um, introduced, and over the two um, periods of the survey, that remained at about 80%. So, if people are only being paid 20%, that is of concern. And then we have had some a number of people that have had to retrench staff as a result of that, and um, many people have reduced the number of hours that people have been working. So if I can have the next slide, please, Alvin. And so if we just do a quick summary of the things that have been highlighted for us is that the um, people have really had difficulty in submitting pre-authorizations and there have, there have been error messages when they do that and they've not been able to resolve it. Authorizations have been problematic because the CompEasy staff have not been able to pull through the do documents which have been submitted. 
The majority of payments have definitely not been paid within 30 days and payments generally seem to be quite haphazard and um, quite random. We found that members have said that the communication to try to resolve problems has been quite complex and um, a little unsatisfactory. Many employers have not been able to successfully register their claims. The system is often down and people have had difficulty in getting log in details. And obviously these concerns adversely affect patient outcomes. If I can have the next slide. So our next point is that as accounts often remain unsettled due to the employers not registering their employees on the CompEasy system, OTASA really welcomes the penalties for employers to ensure better compliance. However, we must highlight that there are persistent reports that it is difficult for employers to register on the system. And we do have a bit of a concern that in some cases, the size of these penalties can be quite considerable. And then we really do believe that the compensation fund should be held responsible and accountable for the utility of the CompEasy system in order that we can ensure that the people that need services can receive them. Can I have the next slide then? An additional point regarding the, the bill is the terminology that is used throughout the bill, which tends to focus on the medical practitioner. And the medical practitioner in law actually applies to a doctor. And we find that term quite exclusionary to the many um, allied health professionals, well, the rehab professionals that also provide services. So we really would request um, that an alternative and more fitting term would be the healthcare practitioners. Now this, we find that in terms of our practice, the, the use of this term medical practitioners has a number of consequences. Firstly, for what is paid for, because it falls under this term of medical expenses. And occupational therapists have expenses ad over and above medical expenses in the context of our practice. So we are concerned about that. And it also interferes with professional independence, particularly when it specifies on the forms which have to be submitted, that a form must be signed by a, a, a medical practitioner. I mean, only occupational therapists can sign for their own practice. Medical practitioners cannot sign for us. We also find the term medical aid within the bill quite confusing because it's used inconsistently with the term in private health in the private healthcare industry, which really refers to um, medical benefits that can be bought from health funders. Thanks, Alvin. The next slide. Perhaps the um, the most contentious. Uh, component of the bill is the proposed prohibition of the involvement of intermediaries in the claim and compensation recovery process. And while we acknowledge that um, this may be a good business practice to have only to have direct um, um, interaction with the compensation fund around service delivery and around payment, 
we do have very grave concerns about the capacity of the CompEasy system and the compensation fund to settle accounts within 30 days, which is obviously of concern to our private practitioners and their ability to manage their practices and to survive financially. From our recent surveys, we, have, we know that most members use an intermediary. And over the last um, three surveys that we've done, there has been a decrease in the number of members who work directly with the fund from 29% in um, early last year to 18% in this year. So I'm going to hand over to um, um, Natalie Powell, who is a, a private practitioner who deals directly with the compensation fund to report to you on the many challenges that there are. Thanks, Thank Alan. you, Pat. Thank you, honorable members, uh, Madam Chair. Um, as a practice that um, works directly with a compensation fund, we experience uh, many difficulties. Um, I don't know that it's how you have positioned your, 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 your gadget or your sitting. We only see your, we only see your mouth. Oh, Sorry, is now. that better? Sorry. Yeah, much better. Thank you. <laughs> Um, we have a number of difficulties when working directly with the CompEasy system. Since the implementation of the new system, um, there have been a number of employers that are unable to register on the system. Therefore, the patients that we have been treating have not had claim numbers to date. We're also finding that uh, patients who are foreign nationals with passport numbers their claims cannot be registered on the CompEasy system. And again, these patients have been treated and um, there's still an outstanding claim number. We have had claims that we have been unable to submit for the last 18 months due to claim numbers not being able to be obtained. The system itself, there's often difficulty logging in. There's a lot of downtime on the system and within practices, we are unable to log onto the system at more than one computer at a time. Thus, only one person can work on um, uploading documentation and writing reports and the like. We have numerous difficulties uploading documents that are required for the claim process. Um, we're unable to view the uploaded documents um, once they are submitted to the system. We are also unable to keep a record of the documents that are uploaded or the reports. There is no record of it at all on the system for us to be able to see and ensure that documentation is there. Um, we have been requested to upload additional documents, uh, documents for pre-authorizations by the agents, um, which is extremely time consuming. Um, documents like employer's reports of accidents, first medical reports, ID documentation, which should already be on the system as the person has a claim number. And what we are also finding is that documents are not pulling through onto the system in completeness. So we're having pre-authorizations rejected because documentation, the adequate documentation is not there. 
which leads to multiple queries having to be submitted um, by email. There's an increased time, time required in then trying to obtain pre-authorizations. Next slide, please. EDI submission of claims. There is poor feedback from the fund to the switch house regarding rejection of claims. So we are unable to then determine whether claims have been received in totality by the fund or correct um, errors in coding or RCD10 codes um, as we would with medical aid funders when we submit uh, uh, claims via EDR. We're also finding that claims are captured incorrect, incorrectly. If we look on the system, we see that multiple invoices are captured on a single date. So there could be 10 to 15 treatments on different dates that are all captured under one date, which is incorrect. Pre-authorizations for treatment. There's a lot of duplication of information on the system. The paper-based report that we required to submit is then duplicated electronically um, when we are uploading that information. It would make a lot more sense if it was all electronically done um, as it doubles the work that we are required to do. And the pre-authorization format is not easily navig navigatable. Um, again, the documentation is not uploading completely, which is leading to numerous rejections on the pre-authorization. We are often encountering error messages when um, trying to upload these pre-authorizations, which therefore um, means we can't submit a pre-authorization. Um, pre-authorizations are also taking a, a significant time to get authorization on, um, and we're faced with the challenge of do we continue treatment or do we discontinue treatment until we uh, have authorization for the treatment that is required. Call center queries. If our, our administration staff try and contact the call center to try and resolve queries, they are often on hold for extended periods of time, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, which is fairly significant in a day when there's other work to be done. And we're often unable to resolve the queries through the call center. The other avenue of sending support emails um, we are also faced with many challenges as the queries often remain unanswered and again unresolved. Next slide, please. With new claims, um, we are finding that claims are being registered and claim numbers are generated more timelessly of late, which is an absolute pleasure and does make our work easier. However, what we do find is that these claims hang in new claim status. And again, when the claim is in this status, we are unable to submit invoices and pre-authorizations for treatment, which further delays our invoices being settled. So the implications that we face as practices, it significantly influences our cash flow. We have consumable materials used in treatment such as splinting material and pressure garment material that are paid for um, on delivery and in, in advance of administering the treatment. Our practice expenses are paid monthly and these continue regardless of whether our invoices are paid or not. Um, and we are being paid slowly for our services. 
we're unable to sustain a practice with large outstanding invoices for unreasonable periods of time. The system increases the demand on our human resources due to the inefficiency of our system, of the system. And the reports are extremely time consuming and repetitive for the therapists um, who are treating the patients. And it does take away from treatment time. Next slide, please. I think the most important takeaway from this is that the, the implication that this has for our patients. The standard of care that is delivered to patients drops. Um, patients are seen less frequently to limit the financial risk for the practice. Pressure garmenting and splinting that require expensive materials in their manufacture are not being prescribed as frequently or as readily. We are experiencing situations where other medical professionals are refusing to see COID patients. So when our patients require specialist care from perhaps neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, we've had numerous, numerous uh, specialists in our area that have stopped seeing these patients. So our patients are no longer getting other specialist care that they should be receiving. It also leads to a poor prognosis for our patients and possible increased disability um, in the future which I would think would lead to increased payouts from the fund because the patient's um, function will uh, remain unresolved and deteriorate and um, yeah, patients are not getting treated adequately. Thank you. The last point that we want to make on the bill is that we have been have been informed that the the system is in place in order to combat waste and fraud. And as a national association, we would one hundred percent support the elimination of waste and uh, waste and fraud. So it raises a number of questions in our mind, and that is. Why have, if, if transgressions are known, why have they not been reported to the Health Professional Council who has, who can investigate and take appropriate action against members who are responsible? And secondly, the question also arises is who in the compensation fund is making judgments about pre-authorizations and over-servicing and any potential fraud activities? I mean, we have some concerns that some of these judgments are being made by um, people who ha do have no knowledge of occupational therapy, <clears throat> when these judgments should be made by qualified occupational therapists who are up to date and who are really skilled in working in the field and could make a proper judgment call on the extent to which um, treatment is needed, how much treatment is needed, and what should be, in fact, paid for. So that is our last comment. So just in concluding, um, just in summary, therefore, we support the rehabilitation emphasis in the bill. We have great concerns about the utility and the efficiency of the CompEasy system, and this obviously must be improved. 
We have some concerns around the terminology about the medical practitioners versus healthcare practitioners. And we also have some concerns that third party intermediaries cannot be excluded at this time unless the compensation fund is held accountable and is capable of payments in 30 days. Um, because this obviously um, influences the capacity of our practitioners to provide good services and to, um, to manage their practices. And we would also like to know who and how is the call being made on fraud and waste. And as a last word, I think as occupational therapists, we, our purpose is to help um, provide services to our patients so that the, 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 in the prevention of um, disability and in early and timeless return to work. So on behalf of my team, I would like to thank you for this opportunity to address you for your time and for your attention. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Doctor. We will now uh, uh, invite Hans again, just to remind members, Hans, for questions of clarity for now. Thank you, Madam Chair, I would like. I've seen three hands. I've seen, I've seen Honorable Inanna, I've seen Honorable Gabani, I've seen Honorable Dana, I've seen Honorable Baker. In that order, Honorable Inanna, questions of clarity. Yes, thank you very much, Chairperson. My, my question of clarity, Chairperson, is that now that this information is very important, how does the Occupational Association give the community an education of what it contains, especially to those who are in the rural areas? Because much of what has been captured is not reaching the communities in the rural areas. The second one, Clarity Chaperson, is that in areas like in Northern Cape, there have been many victims of asbestos inhalation. Is the Occupation Association involved with assisting those people? Uh, and what is the process up until now that they have been assisting? The last chairperson is asbestos is known to be very dangerous in terms of inhalation. And many of the houses are roofed with this asbestos. Is the association doing anything in engaging the government not to continue with the roofing by asbestos in order to prevent lung cancer, asbestosis, and mesotolanin? Because those are some of the diseases that the two occupational uh, diseases people are incurring. Thank you very much, Chair. Uh, thank you, Honorable Kabane. No, greetings, uh, Chairperson and the Honorable Members. My Chair is a bit uh, brief, Chair. 
I um I just want to get a clarity around the issues on um predicaments um on the utilization of the Comeasy system, Chair. Um if my memory serves me well, Chair, I remember that there was a a, a, a presentation that was tabled before the committee um, that says um, there was a proper engagement with the stakeholders on the configuration of the system from the then system to the current system that, uh, that uh, we are using uh, the compensation fund. So what I want to get is that is the, was the association part of those um, stakeholders engagement because when I look at their presentations, when they raise the challenges, it's like there is a lack of understanding in terms of um, um, operating the system, the logging in and stuff and stuff because they are saying there is no feedback that they are getting. Um, uh, they, it is not um, uh, 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 effective enough and stuff. So that's my clarity. I just want to get um, a, a clarity if they were part of the stakeholders' engagements, and if not, what were the challenges? What are what were the reasons behind that? Thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you, Governor Honorable Dana. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you for the presentation. Um, occupational therapists obviously have a very important role to play in reintegrating um, workers injured on duty into work and into society. Um, so I just, yeah, I, th I think it's very important, and thank you for highlighting the problems that you have with the system, because obviously if you don't get paid, then you can't fulfill your very Honorable important Honourable Honourable so, I'm getting to my question, Chair. Uh, my yes. question is, have you brought um, these concerns to the attention of the department themselves in the form of the DG, the commissioner of the of the compensation fund? And what was the feedback on that? And maybe the powers that be will listen now to your practical examples. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Pegram. Thank you, Chair. I appreciate it and well done on this presentation. Thank you very much. Um, you we took us through some of the invoices that were not paid. 80% from back way back from 2019. Um, has that led to what you talked about just now, um, where people are retrenching and closing offices? Um, my experience with occupational therapists, when I speak to many of them, are telling me that they're going abroad and seeking work elsewhere and leaving our system. Can you tell us a bit about that? You spoke about the pre-authorization and the impossibility. Now, I'm hearing this from right across the board and all the medical service providers, not only the doctors, but across the board. Have you been in discussions with any of the other service providers um, to can tell you that they're experiencing the same? Because uh, that's what I'm hearing. Um, in terms of the CompEasy system, um, I, I, I hear what you're saying, that the system's often down, uh, that um, it affects patient outcomes, it, uh, it's adverse for the staff. Um, at the end of the day, it's the employees that we're really worried about here um, within, the, within the parliamentary system. But you're telling us that the employees are suffering because you can't uh, give them the services that they really deserve. And have you kept numbers about that? How many people are, in fact, going without um, the services that you provide and have to provide, but you can't because you're just not getting paid? 
Um, when you're talking about employers who have to register and they're having difficulty registering on that on the uh, the system, um, have you are you keeping numbers? Are you uh, are, is your association collating this? I'd like to hear about that. And if they are collating it, where they send where they're sending it, and uh, maybe we could then, as a committee, then follow up on that as well. So if you can give us those numbers, it would be important. If you haven't got it, then maybe it's worthwhile sending out another uh, memorandum to all your members to give you the collation of that. Um, and you spoke about the allied professions um, and you spoke about healthcare practitioners. Um, I, I would like you to tell us as to whether there's similar feedback. What you're experiencing, is it similar with the other professions and are you coordinating with others um, about this? Um, and then you spoke about the intermediaries and you said it might be good business practice. I'm not sure why you said that. Why are you saying this might be good business practice? And at the end of the day, uh, it's a very good profession to be able to provide service to the medical advisors and to your profession. Um, and if, in fact, you want to get on with your professional practice as opposed to worrying about administration, which we've just heard is so difficult, uh, why would you even suggest that getting rid of intermediaries is good business practice? Um, I think it will destroy the profession altogether. Um, and then if, if you have a look at the downtime of the system, it might also be worthwhile. Uh, maybe you can tell us now um, how much, because what I'm hearing is that the downtime is almost 50%. Um, and in fact, government has spent 200 million rand on this new CompEasy system, if not more, and they've changed it a few times. So I'd like to hear more about that. So thank you very much. I have others to ask, but I've been cut short. Thank you. No, I'm not. I'm not cutting you short. I'm not cutting you short, honourable members. Is that you? You you start. Members start with with prefacing instead of zooming straight to the to the question and and also. I'm a bit sensitive to people that are to respond because before you 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 reflect to your question, there are a number of uh, so I'm, I've not cut anybody short. The the question from my side will be which will be the last question. So that you have identified shortcomings and challenges in the new system of COMEs, which you say it must improve. Have you ever thought of physically visiting the compensation fund offices and witness and be demonstrated on how the new system is working? Thank you. I will, I will then I will then allow you to respond on the questions and, uh, and uh, you, you will, among yourselves, you'll see who will respond on what best. Over to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> Alvin, would you like to start? Mm. So um, if you will allow me to, I'd like to respond to Honorable Hinana's question, the first question in relation to how we are reaching out to our, our patients in the rural areas and what role occupational therapists play in the management of um, 
um, respiratory illnesses related to exposure to asbestos. So, um, Honorable Inanna, this is a, a strategic objective of the association. So, we have strategic alliances not only with our occupational therapists in uh, private sector, but very strong alliances with our, our therapists in public sector. So we have a joint national forum for occupational therapists um, that sits at a national level, and that also um, functions at each in at each provincial level. And so um, we, uh, this is one way in which we are reaching our our patients in the rural areas. It's also important for us to perhaps share with you that outside of the profession, we also have um, strategic alliances with the Rural Advocacy Project um, and um, Physiotherapy Association and other rehabilitation professionals as well. Just as, as um, you know, medical practitioners have difficulty in reaching our clients in deep rural areas, Occupational therapists have even more significant challenges because of the fact that we are such a small profession that we are not necessarily prioritized in terms of the human resources planning for health. And so you find that in rural areas, there are still very small numbers of occupational therapists that have posts. Therefore, it has been a strategic objective of the association to work collaboratively with um, other associations and with other professionals to ensure that our patients are getting access to, to therapy services and that no one is left behind. Um, this also has meant that we had to work with, with um, district managers um, in specific geographical service areas to ensure that our patients in rural areas have access to, to rehabilitation and particularly assistive devices. And so whether that is um, collaborating with emergency medical services to ensure that we've got vehicles to go into the rural areas or to, um, you know, uh, collaborate with NGOs to ensure that our therapists are actually working with community development workers to ensure that our patients have access to services. In relation to the second part of your question, um, Honorable Inanna, around the exposure of clients to asbestos and the resultant respiratory disease um, diseases that um, they are then um, subjected to, occupational therapists are definitely involved in this. What we are finding, though, is that our role primarily has been um, not necessarily on the promotative or preventative um, aspects of preventing this respiratory illness, but more so on the rehabilitative point of view. So this is definitely a gap in terms of the service provision of occupational therapy in relation to promoting and, and well, promoting awareness and then also, um, you know, advocating for strategies around preventing um, exposure to this particular um, material. And so we would really, um, you know, in, in, encourage invitation by, by you know, um, stakeholders, government officials who would, would um, want us to, to collaborate with them in terms of sharing our standards of practice in relation to this particular area, whether it is um, preventative, promotative and rehabilitation. So I'm going to hand back to my colleagues to perhaps add anything or to respond to the, the rest of the four questions that was um, fielded to us. Um, thanks. Um, does, do anybody want to add to that, Natalie or Leandri, to what 
perhaps what we what we would like to say is that throughout this process we have had um, collaboration with the compensation fund. We have a regular meeting with them at um, probably two meetings a year, uh, sometimes more than and but we have intermittent email collaboration with them around the problems. Since last year, obviously we've had um, virtual meetings. We have, um, so, I mean, we have had continuous uh, uh, discussions with them around what the problems are. Um, we have, um, <laughs> I mean, we have tried to uh, get, we have looked at the system, they've tried to demonstrate it to us, but the, the, that that's not necessarily the 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 way to disseminate the information out because in the provinces people have to go to central areas for assistance and that's also been one of the problems. So I'm going to ask Leandri if she will talk about. Um, I mean, she's very aware of the system and what we've done in order to assist people to actually be able to register on the system and to be able to use it more effectively. Would you? Thank you, Prof. And Pat. Um, thank you, Honorable Members and Chair. I am forming part of the Utasa Koi Task Team, and as Pat has explained, we often have meetings with the compensation fund to discuss the challenges around the CompEasy system. Um, we have been in contact with a super user, um, but the problems relating to the CompEasy system has not been resolved. Uh, we have asked for live demonstrations. Um, I myself have been to the Department of Labor in Bridges Bay and Durban where I have been unable to obtain any assistance in order how to navigate the CompEasy system. Um, we have asked for super user information that we can disseminate to our members so that they can make direct contact uh, with the CompEasy um, super users in order to overcome the barriers uh, that has been presented today. If there are any other ways that we can make contact and overcome these barriers, we are open um, for suggestions. Perhaps, it, perhaps I could also add is that we've had a number of processes in trying to assist people who have long-standing claims outstanding uh, in terms of trying to do um, send bulk information so that they can resolve uh, problems. This has been been highly problematic, in fact, because there are some regular, there's some poppy regulations which um, restrict what can be sent via email and to whom on details of people so that we can try and resolve that. Um, so we've not, so we've really tried on, I think three occasions, our lawyers have tried, um, we've tried to send um, consolidated lists on two occasions and, um, and I, I don't think that that has been resolved. They did inform us that they had um, got an outside um, service provider to uh, try to overcome this problem. As I understood from the last meeting, and Leandri, you will correct me if I'm wrong, that this had not been successful. 
that is correct. The suggest the the problem with outstanding outstanding claims when um, the program was moved from Mushleko to Comp Easy and the outstanding invoices, we had various meetings with the partners of labor in suggesting how we can overcome these barriers. Um, and we have recently been informed in March that all of this will come to an end as the only way going forward will be to navigate these invoices via Comp Easy. And we have presented today the challenges of invoicing our current patients, not to even mention the outstanding claims from previous years. So colleague, uh, Prof, if, um, I mean, I think that we have sort of answered um, Honorable Ngabu and Honorable Dennis' questions. I'm just wondering if we should move on to answering Honorable Member Begrain's question um, or questions. Um, is that okay with the team? Yes, sure. So um, please forgive me. Honorable Bagram, I have tried to, to really make um, succinct notes of all of the questions that you had asked, um, and, and I'm going to admit here that I am going to probably not answer all of them, so my apologies from the start. But what I do want to say is that, um, yes, we do have a list of, of um, our clients that have been directly affected by the non-payment system. We, we have been keeping um, lists from individual practices. Um, and we, I mean, this is an ongoing exercise. We are primarily concerned on the adverse um, outcomes of our clients being not able to access rehabilitation services. And then secondly, we, we, are, we are experiencing an exit of, of occupational therapists to, to countries um, such as the US and, and Europe. This is not just in, in, in the private sector, but this is also in the public sector. And of course, our huge concern as an association is that what impact this will have on national health insurance when we are really wanting to ensure that every South African has access to decent healthcare services. And more importantly, I think what we have to emphasize that given the unemployment rates in our country, we cannot have um, instances where, where patients who can be rehabilitated, who can be reintegrated back to work, some kind of employment and to contribute to the economy is left behind. Um, and, I, and I really think that we, we, the intention of this morning's address is really to provide context to the issues um, that is, is, is impacting, number one, the profession, but also impacting the end user. Then, um, yes, um, Honourable Bargain, we do have collaborations with other um, professional groupings that are also providing services um, you know, within the Comp Easy system. So we have a network of, um, of, of health professionals, what, you know, is commonly known as allied health professionals. We don't refer to ourselves as allied. Um, we do have a, a system where we are communicating, where we are collating all of the evidence and where we're ensuring that we are speaking with one unified voice. This has also been supported by um, the president's, um, you know, strategy around um, the, the, the health compact where the occupational therapist has joined uh, or collaborated rather with um, other uh, rehabilitation healthcare professionals. Um, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that I've answered most of your questions, um, Honorable Bagram. Um, my apologies if I haven't. 
Um, and then to uh, Madam Chairperson, um, uh, I think. Sorry, there was sorry. One, sorry, interrupt you, Alvin. There was one very um, important question. Can I, sorry, sorry, sorry. There's a chair in this meeting. Uh, allow the person to finish responding. If you feel that you must add, you will then request to add to the chair. Thank you. Allow him uh, to finish. Then if you uh, want to add, we then come back. Yeah. Ap apologies, um, Madam Chairperson. Um, just in response to your question, um, I'm hoping that the responses by my colleague, Leandre Richter, has, um, has answered your questions around whether or not we have physically visited the offices. Um, we have a number of, of occupational therapists that have attempted to visit the offices at the provincial level. Um, to try and, and, you know, have access to super users, to have demonstrations on how the actual system works. The, the, the challenges that we've presented to you this morning um, is despite um, these interventions by the association. Um, Madam Chairperson, can I please, um, through you, um, hand over to the next colleague to respond to the, the questions? If she, yes, to, to add on, on yeah. issues that you may have missed. Over Thank you, you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Chair. I would like to add to um, Mr. Williams's comment on the question raised by uh, Honorable Member Bargren, where he has asked um, why do we advocate for intermediaries um, or, or not, I would like to correct that we are advocating for intermediaries um, and that we have well stipulated that we are unable to take on um, the, the, the administration, administrative burden on the practice. Even offices in provinces. Um, we would advocate for intermediaries to be included in the bill. Um, many of our occupational therapists use third parties to claim on their behalf. Thank you. Uh, Prof, do you want to add something? Um, thank you, Madam Chair. I think that the, the, the question about the intermediaries and whether it's good business practice or not, I think that when you have a third party that complicates business practice. I think businesses, um, uh, pr practices pay intermediaries, so it takes away from their e earnings. They also have complex um, contracts with intermediaries, which tie them into, um, into uh, things. And so I think that from a, <clears throat> from a, a simplistic view is if one had <clears throat> a system where you had to deal with only one, one um one person instead of third parties um, that would make it that would make a running a practice or practice management easier but certainly it's not possible under the current situation because people just are not getting paid and um and and so one 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 would have to support um um, the fact that intermediaries are there unless some alternative can be made and the payment system is more effective so I don't know if that answers the question. 
And just to add also, there is no doubt that we are, I mean, we have a, um, a collaboration, we have a collaboration committee with the physios and the speech therapists. And um, we very often have meetings together with the physios and the compensation fund. We have always worked directly with the compensation fund. We've never gone um, to the minister or outside of that, um, perhaps if that's a, a way to resolve it. Um, the the introduction of the CompEasy system occurred exactly as my presidency started. And there, um, my understanding was that there wasn't a great deal of communication around the change of the system, but the system created great hardship for, for occupational therapists who were paid because the system immediately was not functional. And I think Mr. Williams and I took office at more or less the same time. And it was a very traumatic period for, um, for our, our therapists. And we participated in many national platforms in order to raise concerns about this. So it's not that the voices have been, have, we have not voiced our concerns. Um, perhaps we need to take it to higher levels and maybe some advice on that. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I would appreciate if, if you can mute uh, Prof and the, and the lady that you are with. Okay. No, thank you very much for the, for the, for the presentation. You have also raised some, some other issues, which I don't want to put you on the spotlight. Because my understanding is that committee meetings are public meetings. A person who's interested can go into the website and see what a particular committee is going to discuss. And if what that particular committee is going to discuss something of interest, you can, you can well, unfortunately it was pandemic, people are at, 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 at are invited and nobody is chased away. Even now in this process, if people want to log in, they can log in in any. I'm raising this because you want an advice of how to, I think in moving forward. So that if you, if you see that the committee is going to discuss compensation, is, is inviting compensation fund officials to come and make a presentation, you can come in. And, and, and listen, maybe in moving forward so that you are then being exposed to questions that are being asked and what is then reported. But I will encourage you if you want to, to report um, either to the, to the department, to the DG and to the ministry, to the minister of, of the lack of, as you are alleging, lack of of interaction and communication and then being exposed to what is, 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 is transpiring within the space of the compensation fund. I just want to, just to get clarity, the lady said he, she went to a, lab, a labor center. I couldn't pick up where, which province, and you said you are not assisted. Which, which province and town was that? Yes. Thank you, um, Chairperson. 
I was well assisted in Richards Bay. I practice in Richards Bay and I would give compliments to the staff members in Richards Bay. Unfortunately, they are not a major labor center. I was referred to Durban. I drove to Durban and I was not assisted in Durban. I'm unable to get hold of the members to make an appointment. On arrival, there was no one available to meet with me. Was it during this time of the pandemic? No, this was prior to the pandemic when Umifiko was transferred to Compeasy. Okay, if, if you can just then uh, recheck your notes, check when, when was that, which month, which day, and which year, you will send that, you send that to the Secretariat of the Committee because I think we will need that information. Okay, thank you very much, honorable members, and, and thank you very much for your for your for your for your detailed input. We will uh, yeah. If you want to join, if you want to stay and listen, it's up to you. If you want to log out, it's it's also up to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Uh, thank you, Honorable Chair. Yes. Come. And Mr. Sakaza. Thank you, Mr. Sakaza. Who is the next? Which is the next group? Thank you, Chair. Uh, we've got now Comsol. Uh, Mr. Craig Tad Hope is uh, our presenter from Comsol. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. We can't, we can't see your face, we can't hear your voice, we only see your presentation on the screen. Jay, you should be able to see our presentation and now that we are talking, you should be able to see our videos. Good morning, uh, Madam Chair. All Come again. Come again. Madam Chair, as soon as we start speaking, the video should show and our presentation should also be showing on your screen. Who's going to make a presentation? Good morning, Honorable Madam Chair and Honorable Members of the Portfolio Committee. My name is Fritz Lüttich. I'm going to lead the presentation from Comsol this morning. Uh, with me is Mr. Craig Tudhope, as well as Mrs. Marika Vermark, uh, both specialists in their field, and they will address the committee on certain specialist um, sections of our submission. If I may proceed, Madam Chair. You may. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. Are we good to go? Yeah. Um, as I said, I will be um, leading the presentation this morning. And first of all, I'd like to thank the uh, drafters of the uh, bill in terms of the many additions that was made that is long overdue and it is most welcomed, especially the addition of domestic workers in the new amendment bill. And we look forward to see how those regulations are going to um, be published so that we can start servicing them as well. We have 
divided our presentation into three parts. I will be doing the overview in terms of our positioning in the marketplace, what we are finding and some practical implications. And Mr. Tadop will be giving you a bit more information on the, uh, the exact clause 43.4 in terms of sedation or seeding. And he will talk to what it does and what it does not do. And then uh, Mrs. Mark will speak to you about the legal implications of clause 43.4. Now, if we can just start at the beginning of where it all happens. This whole process starts from an employer's employees that gets injured at work. When they get injured, they require the assistance and services of a spectrum of medical service providers or healthcare practitioners, as we've heard earlier on. And they will include basically the full spectrum of 66 various disciplines, amongst others, the ambulances, the hospitals, doctors, occupational therapists, physios, surgeons, radiologists, orthopedic surgeons, etc. Now, all of these various disciplines deliver a health service to the injured workers, but there is documentation that needs to accompany that service delivery in order to move the process forward. And that is roughly divided into two, which is the medical reporting side and then the invoice side or the medical bills. Now, both those medical uh, in invoices as well as the medical reports are then forwarded to an administrator. Now, that administrator can be the medical practitioner's own internal administrative staff, or it can be outsourced, that we've seen has happened quite a lot um, lately. And that administrator will then validate and process and make sure that whatever documentation is received has been is compliant with what the Act uh, stipulates. Once that is done, and as in our case, we then forward those that information to a sessionary. That happens to be us as well because we offer both administrative and sessionary services. A sessionary, just to put everybody on the same page, is somebody who has a contract with this medical service providers in order to pre-fund their invoices. So once the, the invoices has been validated by the administrator, the sessionary will then have the locus standi or the right to act on that invoice due to a contract that it has with the various service providers. And they will then get paid, the service providers, in our case, within 14 days after we've done all those validations. Once that is done, the, the documentation as received from the various service providers will then be forwarded to the compensation fund where they will, uh, in loose terms, repeat the process that has already happened. They will process and validate on their side, and then some payments will happen from that. That is, in short, the flow of the process. What you is probably not um, so glaringly missing on this is the compensation paid to employees. And we have left that out because we are specifically focusing on clause 43.4 in today's verbal presentation. 
So let's just look at Comsol in the marketplace. Um, we have got a national footprint of just over 1,800 practices, you know, that's individual practice numbers. And it encompasses the whole 66 medical disciplines and we present a little bit more than 5,000 individual medical professionals or healthcare professionals. The group of medical service providers that uh, is contracted to us has delivered 3.4 million treatments to almost 800,000 injured workers over the past five years. And we've assisted in the region of 180,000 employers with their IODs in the same time period. Now, if we look at the volumes in RAND terms, we have factored, or as it's also well known, pre-funded more than 4.5 billion. Those numbers are billions, uh, 4.5 billion rands over the past five years. And we've processed in excess of 60% of all the medical accounts submitted to the fund. We employ around 438 staff members, mostly stationed in the Eastern Cape, where much needed employment is created. Now, if we look at the debtors, the unpaid accounts, our medical service providers are collectively owed more than 565 million rand. And those accounts are switched into the fund system as per their prescriptions, but it remains unpaid. In addition to that, and that is actually where a major problem lies, an additional around about 180 million, it changes daily as new claims come in and, and some are, are paid. Those 100, that 180 million rands worth of services that's already been rendered are sitting in a pool on our side because those claims could not be registered that those invoices relate to. The medical service providers has in fact delivered a service in good faith, but because of the structure of the CompEasy system, those claims have yet not been registered. So there's no number. And the sadness of this is that the patients involved in that 180 million cannot be paid, they cannot claim, nor can any employer claim the 75% if the patient is off work for more than three days. So that's a major problem in terms of registration. That's not happening. So if one does a stock standard debtors days calculation, the accounting calculation, on our group of medical service providers, we can see that the average time for the fund to pay an invoice is an unbelievable 347 days. It's almost a year before on average an account gets paid since the service was delivered. Now, if one has cognizance of the fact that this is an average over all our um, um, medical service providers, but also on the performance of the fund all over. And we break it down to the individuals, uh, labor centers or labor offices. We see an even worse picture. And we can see there right at the top, at the top or the worst three um, labor offices are in excess of 400 days. My own home city, closing in on almost 500 days average before an account gets paid. And the best that the funds labor offices is doing is 221 days. 
Now, even that is excessively long to wait for your accounts to be paid because there's lots that needs to be paid from a medical practice in terms of their salaries, their rent, data, uh, consumables that needs to be paid, et cetera, et cetera. But that just gives us a breakdown of which labor center is performing and which are not. If we now have cognizance of that 340 average, and we look to data's days in perspective to what it should in fact be, we see that in a normal medical practice that medical aids in the region of 25 to 40 days uh, payment cycle is acceptable. Ourselves, we do the turnaround in 14 days and the compensation fund, unfortunately, 220 to 474 days as is currently the figures. So one can see that it is completely out of kilter with what should normally happen in a medical practice. And it emphasizes the fact that if the medical service providers themselves has to carry those type of debtors for that period of time, they will actually go out of business. So the question then obviously arises, is it fair that your doctor waits more than a year to be paid after you've received the treatment? I mean, one cannot reasonably expect that somebody that goes to buy a television set takes it away and doesn't pay the supplier for over a year. Now, if we look at what this, the function of sessionaries or third-party sessionaries is like ourselves, we are in fact the gatekeepers between employers, employees, the medical service providers and the fund. We ensure that whatever gets done out there, we have no influence over that, but we aggregate and we validate and we make sure that there's 100% compliance with the COIT Act, with the tariffs published in the Gazette and the rules and the regulations. And we ensure that the injured workers, they realize their rights in terms of the COIT Act. We provide an encompassing administrative support to all the stakeholders. And we provide much needed working capital to the medical fraternity. And if we take cognizance of the earlier speakers about the fraud situation, because we are the gatekeepers, we eliminate 99.9% .9 of potential fraud. And I, I, I stress the word potential because we eliminate that even before anything gets submitted to the fund. Now, why do we oppose clause 43.4 in the bill? The, that's the clause that um, prohibits the session of medical invoices. And like the previous speakers, I want to uh, concur with what they've said. In spite of unbelievable amounts of outreach, whether that be letters, phone calls, requests for meetings, emails, there's been limited response from the commissioner himself regarding the serious shortcomings on the fund. We have numerous meetings with senior management officials at the fund. In the, in the past, before lockdown, it was in our offices down here, where we are now, or in their offices and of late, obviously, on video conferencing, where we can share our screens, they can share their screens, and we can see what they can see on the CompEasy system, and they can see what we can see. And there is an enormous amount of disconnect between what the funds um, operators can see on that side, what we as 
from the medical service provider side can see on the site. Be it as it may, however many examples we show and however many problems we expose, the fund seems unable, if I can use that word, to fix the problems of the CompEasy system. And further on, there are there are staff working there that's finding it difficult to understand and grasp the concepts of what needs to be done, do what needs to be done in order not to invalidly reject invoices. And then the third uh, point there is that individual service providers cannot afford to take legal action against the fund. It is just unaffordable and too expensive. Now, what? What do the shareholders need? What do they seek? It's very simple. They seek just administrative action. That is what is required from the employers, the employees, and the medical service providers alike. Now, what this clause 43.4, in our opinion, seeks to do is to ban the collective ability of third-party sessionaries to hold the fund accountable for just administrative action. And I'll expand to that a little bit later. So having said our inability and um, the non-reactiveness from the fund, in spite of numerous engagements, and we believe that it is exhausted, as um, Salma presentation stated yesterday, they already stopped the engagement in 2016, if I recall correctly. It doesn't leave us that wants to service this particular market the injury on workers market with much of a choice, but to go the legal route to ensure that the fund complies with its legal mandate. So let me give you a bit of background and what has happened in the legal sphere um, and what the high courts in Pretoria has ruled. Now, over the, the last couple of years, there's been various uh, summary judgment court cases. And I'm just giving you a small peek in the a bit of a summary here, but there was no less than 18 different judges of the High Court, the North Gauteng High Court, that rejected all of the funds repetitive and frivolous defenses. Yet they persist with those same defenses and wasteful expenditure for every single time we take them to task. And then if I may just uh, show the Commission a specific judgment from Judge Constantinidis um, about a year ago. She said this repetitive and frivolous defences, the funds legal action, is a textbook example of the abuse of the court process. That was on the 4th of May 2020. Now this is what an individual practice also they needs to face if they want to get their invoices paid. And as I said earlier on, if you don't have the collective power of about 2,000 medical practices, this would be vastly impossible to take the fund to court. Now, a very specific example is in nine recent court cases, the fund's officials presented 113 rejected invoice examples. In other words, that we said they must pay these invoices, they took samples out of that list, put it in front of a judge, under oath, I must add, directly out of CompEasy as proof of why these invoices will not be paid by the fund. And on investigation, all 113 of these invoices were invalidly rejected. Now allow me to please 
enlighten you a little bit more in terms of how and why they were rejected. Now, on further investigation, we found that on, in our case, the total invalid rejections in our debtors book, if we can call it like, already stands at 222 million as of last week. That is the number or the, the rand value, the value of invoices submitted to the fund that complies 100% with the requirements of the act, but that was invalidly rejected. Now, if we sum this up into a table, I'm talking about the 113 uh, examples that I showed earlier on. We see that we can divide them into two broad areas. The one is CompEasy software problems, and the one is compensation fund staff problems. If we have uh, cognizance for the top half of the table where the software is, we can see on the right-hand right column the total of 85. So 85 of the 113 examples, carefully selected examples by the funds officials to show the judge that we are wrong and they have validly rejected those individual accounts. Is 85 is is comp easy software problems. That is 75%. And if we drill down to the middle column of invalid billing, and I'm not going to keep you long by giving you all the examples, but invalid billing, for instance, is a rejection from the fund because a tariff code that was submitted on the invoice was not in the comp easy system. But if you look at the gazetted tariffs, the applicable gazetta tariffs, that tariff code is in there, applicable to that specific service provider's discipline. And there is no reason why CompEasy should reject that code because it is gazetted. And we found many of them, you can see the majority, 48 of the 113, where the fund has neglected to even load tariffs codes that's promulgated in a government gazette onto the software system. That's just the one. And then the rest of them is basically the transferring or the migration from Umeshluko to the new CompEasy where all sorts of issues started. On the exempted employer, we submit an employer on an employer's report that says Rockland's poultry. The, the CompEasy system comes back and says, we can't pay it because this employer, i.e., municipality, uh, where that comes from, nobody knows, is an exempted employer. So they reject the account. One has um, consideration for the bottom half, where we say staff, and that's similar to what the previous speakers has um, experienced. We get a lot of no pre-auth or invalid pre-auth while we are in possession of those pre-auths. The pre-auths, on the other hand, might not be necessary, because it's within the two-year period. And there's a lack of medical reports. It's on the system. We've uploaded it. It must be there. And so the list goes on and on. Suffice to say that 100% of the examples selected by the fund staff presented to a judge under oath was incorrectly rejected. Now, I need to just point out that even the best employees cannot work with a broken system. And we need to keep that in mind when we deal with the staff at the fund. So what is the session's practical consideration? 
we eliminate fraud as we ensure legal compliance even before invoices are submitted to the fund via our state-of-the-art software with built-in validations. And the fund is alerted to possible fraudulent transactions from certain individuals. And as far as we could establish that most, if not all of the reported cases involved, or fraud that is, involved the fund's own staff and or service providers submitting invoices directly to the fund and not originated from third-party sessionaries. And we must also be mindful that we only switch invoices after the fund has accepted liability. In other words, the incident is a valid injury on duty. The treatment has been delivered. Post-delivery invoices has been generated. That's what we factor. That is why we need to be a sessionary. And that is what then gets submitted after the fund has accepted liability. Now, no legal action has ever been taken against any third party sessionary that we are aware of. Yes, some legal action has been successful against third party administrators, but those were administrators that did not offer a factoring or a session product. So they can still, in, if 43.4 is promulgated, they can happily carry on with what they were doing. So the inclusion of 43.4 is not going to prohibit the non-session third-party administrators to carry on doing what they have done in the past and will thus not prevent fraud. Factoring equals zero cost. What do we mean by that? It means that the service providers carry the full cost of a commercial factoring arrangement. There's absolutely no cost to the employer, the injured worker, or the compensation fund. And the factoring process happens post-patient treatment, and it does not prohibit any medical legal action against any medical service provider. So the benefits from having a factoring arrangement or sessioning arrangement is that much needed working capital are injected into the practices long before the fund actually pays um, the factoring house. That is obviously to sustain the practices and to get their willingness to treat injured workers. Or injured workers. It also allows the newly qualified doctors to get their practices established because it's expensive. And if they get their cash flow going with a 14-day turnaround, they can afford to build their practices. And injured workers are assisted by willing and able MSPs, like we saw earlier on, on the OT presentation this morning. We all want to help. They're all there for the workers. But it's the, all of us are hamstrung by the actions or the inactions of the fund. And then the back-to-work protocols ensures minimum negative impact on the economy and employers have minimal downtime because we assist them in the very complex COVID environment. So in summary, third-party sessionaries are gatekeepers. We are aggregators. We make sure everything complies with the Act. We are part of the solution, not the problem. But we need legal access to courts to ensure that we can keep the fund uh, to do its legal obligations. And the problem that we face is the chronic dysfunctionality of the compensation funds system and poorly trained staff. So the inclusion of clause 43.4 of the bill will deepen the problems of the fund if third party funders are removed from the system. Workers will be denied their rights. They won't be treated. 
Medical service providers will be withdrawing from the medical treatment or from treating them. Employers will not receive what they pay for and the compensation fund ultimately can face collapse and it would be damaging to the country's economy. I thank you. I will now hand over to Mr. Craig Tudduck and he will discuss uh, the technicalities of seeding, what it does and what it does not do. Thank you, Craig. Thanks, Fritz. Um, good morning, Honorable Chair and Honorable Members. Um, I would like to pivot our presentation today towards a, a legal and a more technical aspect. I'd like to do my chartered accountancy profession um, justice, and I hope Juanita Stienekamp, who presented to you yesterday, would be proud of my presentation today. Um, but we're going to delve into um, the actual clause itself, because on very few of the presentations, um, have you actually had the, the uh, section in front of you? Um, and I know Honourable Chair um, requested that everyone print out uh, their documents. I know in the past you'd received books. Um, so I'm putting the section up there today for us to be able to work through. I'm also then look at, want to look at some of the publicly available context um, that has been provided and then also look at what is and what isn't session. Because to date, and most of the presenters have spoken around the business reason. Sorry, Mr. Craig, sorry. What were you saying about books? In, in the past, ma'am, you, in your committee meetings prior to uh, the introduction of the bill, you noted that all the members must print out their, their acts um, because in the past the committee had received books, um, but because of lockdown, that you the, the portfolio committee was not going to print books for, for the members again. No, can I correct you there? Don't, don't bring in two different things. I've got the responsibility of protecting this committee. It was, it, we, it, it was referring, we're referring to a particular presentation. All members had this, don't, don't assume that because of that members don't have information. I do have a responsibility to protect. So go straight to your presentation and say, because that was referring to something else, not that members never received any documents for presentation. Apologies for the misunderstanding, Chair. Okay, working through Clause 43.4. So just to put it in perspective, um, Clause 43.4 amends Section 73 of the Principal Act. The Principal Act would be the Compensation for Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act. And the focus is around subsection 4. And I'm going to read it to you. And it says, any provision of any agreement existing at the commencement of this Act or concluded thereafter in terms of which a service provider cedes or purports to cede or relinquishes or purports to relinquish any rights to medical claim in terms of this act shall be void. So that is the focus of our presentation. So taking a look at some of the background and context, and I've been doing research around what publicly available information there has been on this clause. In the first place I looked was the memorandum of objects of the bill. And this is included at the back of the bill. And in section two, in the clause by clause analysis, the following is noted, specifically with regards to clause 43. Now, I'm reading from the red block on highlighted on my screen. And it notes clause 43 is to provide that any provision of any agreement existing at the commencement of this act or concluded thereafter in terms of which a service provider cedes or purports to cede or relinquishes or purports to relinquish any rights to medical claim in terms of this act shall be void. Unfortunately, it does not appear that any further analysis has been provided by the drafters of the bill in relation to the memorandum of objects. 
So unfortunately, we don't have any more information relating to the reasons for the introduction of this clause in the bill itself. So after some consultation with the department, I managed to obtain a copy of the socioeconomic impact assessment. This impact assessment is included in our written submission on page 67 onwards as part of Annex A. And this was included in part the department in the presidency in 2015 and requires cabinet sign-off, requires to be completed before there's any cabinet sign-off. As you'll note on the screen, the version signed off was done in May 2015. So almost six years ago and two systems back. It took four years for the documentation to make its way through the Department of Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation and was signed off on the 2nd of August, 2019. It was also noted that the CA took two months to complete, which includes all consultative workshops and final report writing, which is quite timely if you consider the complexities of how much has to go into a documentation like this and how complex the matter is. You'll see on your screen, I've just got three screenshots from the bill or from the CA itself, noting that the May, it's the May 2015 version, was signed off on the 2nd of August with a stamp from the Department of DPME, and that in fact for 0.5.3, it took two months for the, the CA to be completed. The CA itself only notes one specific section relating to session, and it specifies three reasons why this requirement has been brought into the Act. And that is, it requires that service providers submit claims directly to the fund. It wants to reduce fraud and corruption by third parties who buy claims from doctors. And it wants the fund to deal directly with, with businesses and eliminating third parties. So just to repeat, there's three specific items that are noted. Submit claims directly, reduce fraud and corruption, and deal directly with clients eliminating third parties. Unfortunately, there was no consultation of third parties in this year. Neither sessionaries, which Fritz spoke to earlier, nor administrators, nor intermediaries, nor middlemen. They've been called numerous things throughout the various presentations. The private healthcare sector was also not consulted. And this has been confirmed in the hearings to date where the various questions have been answered and none of the providers, as far as I'm aware to date, have noted that they were consulted. The National Department of Health was consulted. However, this was specifically in relation to national health insurance. And there were no consultations done on registered credit providers, cooperative financial institutions, registered banks, factoring houses, or other financial institutions. As the committee may be aware, this is not the first time the COID bill has come out for public comment. In 2018, the COID bill also came for public comment. And I was fortunate enough to attend the public hearings here in Port Elizabeth, the Beach Hotel on the 10th of December, 2018 where I specifically requested the, the, the presenters as to who they had consulted during the process. And they specifically noted that financial service providers and any registered credit providers and banks were not consulted during the process. And the intention of the bill was only to remove third-party administrators. I also would like to mention that Clause 43.4 was not included in the presentation to the committee on the 4th of November, 2020, when the bill was introduced. Chair will note that in our email correspondence afterwards with the committee chairperson and the secretary and one or two of the other committee members, there was some confusion around questions relating to a clause or section 74 as opposed to section 73. 
But clause 43 was one of the only clauses not dealt with in that presentation on the 4th of November. The only other reference I could find in relation to the COID bill is in a report from this committee itself on the 10th of June, 2020, and related to the visit to the compensation funds offices. And I'm gonna specifically mention the section highlighted in red at the bottom of your screen, which says the DG explained that the purpose of introducing the compensation for occupational injuries and diseases amendment bill is to eliminate having to deal with third parties in the future. So on that note, I would like to proceed with what is and what isn't session. And again, my accounting background says, let's go back to the law. So here's clause 43 again, and this is how session or seeding fits in with clause. And specifically notes that where a service provider seeds or purports to seed or relinquishes or purports to relinquish. So what is seed or purports to seed? Well, session contains four aspects. It is an act whereby a sedent or the person who's giving up something, in this case, the medical service provider, transfers rights, which in our case is an invoice, to a sessionary, which is the person receiving. This could be a commercial bank, could be a financial services provider, could be a factoring house, or in our case, Comsol. In everyday plain language, what is it? Well, it's simply the sale of a medical invoice for services already rendered from one person to another. That is session. So let's look at it diagrammatically. And this is a diagram similar to the one that Fritz showed you earlier, where on the left, you'll see the injured employee who gets treated by an ambulance or a hospital or a doctor. They submit the information to an administrator who does the administrative work associated with what is needed to get something to the compensation fund and they submit that information to the compensation fund. Now we know that practices need money to operate. So we introduce a financier, let's call it a bank, let's call it a factoring house, let's call it Comsol. They buy the claims from the medical service providers and they provide them with funding upfront. And in exchange, they receive invoice payment from the compensation fund. I want to reiterate this process. The blue lines that you see on your screen are the operational flows associated with the compensation fund. Those are unaffected by clause 43.4. Clause 43.4 specifically regulates the gray lines heading from the sessionary to the medical service provider, which is the upfront payment and the payment of the invoices by the fund to the sessionary intermediaries and third parties that have been spoken about largely in presentations to date have been around the administration aspect. This is not what clause 43.4 has been introduced to do. So what are the rights that one can transfer when one seeds something? You can transfer ownership, you can transfer the rights to be paid, in this case from the compensation fund, and you can transfer the right to take legal action against the fund or the debtor and that's the loca standard term that Fritz used earlier. It allows you to take the fund to court because you own the account. But it seems like there has been some confusion around what session isn't. And while it's important to look at what the definition of what session does include, it's also important to look at the other side and see what it doesn't include. 
See, session does not prevent the compensation fund from interacting directly with its clients. Session does not cause or increase the risk of fraud. Session itself does not determine into whose bank account the monies are to be paid. It does not impact the compensation benefits to be received by the injured employee, does not result in additional costs to the compensation fund, and it does not violate any of the provisions of the Health Professions Act. I'm going to address each of these individually now. My idea is not to use the department or any of the committee or anyone else's words out of context, but it's actually to provide context with all the information in one location for the committee to be able to make a decision on this clause. Secession does not prevent the compensation fund from interacting with its clients. In a Business Day article earlier this year, it was noted that the fund wants to be like all other insurance companies and medical aid schemes. It would like to deal directly with its clients as other insurance companies and medical aid schemes do as it's in the best interests of workers, business, and the fund. Unfortunately, the fund also noted that it does not have an issue dealing with doctors using intermediaries. And it's also noted that it would not prohibit the use of third parties, provided that they are authorized to act on behalf of their clients. See, third party administrators and practice managers are an accepted norm in the medical industry. And they exist in the medical aid environment, private environment, and in the COID environment. Session does not cause or increase the risk of fraud or determine into whose money the bank into whose bank account money should be paid. So the fund has also noted that they want to eliminate fraud because sometimes claims the, the banking payments fail to, to satisfy their verification systems, which I find strange given the fact that they note that they would not prohibit the use of third parties as previously mentioned, provided that they have authorization to act. So the fund has all the authorizations from the third party sessionaries into whose, money, into whose bank account the monies are to be paid. They have the documentation from the banks, stamped bank statements or stamped bank approval letters. BankServe Africa, which is an organization that manages interbank administration, would be able to verify every single one of these bank accounts from the third party administrators who actually seed accounts. Secession is not and does not impact the compensation benefits to receive by the injured employee. This was actually noted to the portfolio committee on the 19th of February by the commissioner himself. What I've done is I've included in here section 33 of the existing COID Act, which notes that any provision of any agreement existing at the commencement of this act or concluded thereafter in terms of which an employee cedes or purports to cede or relinquishes or purports to relinquish any rights to a benefit of this act shall be void. So an employee cannot legally currently cede their rights. And that is that happens in practice currently. So there's no way that Comsol or any other sessionary takes part in that process. The employees cannot lose their benefits in terms of the existing COID Act. It's important to note clause 43.4 specifically refers to a medical claim. The employee gets the medical treatment. That is their right to receive the medical aid. However, it is the medical service provider's right to be paid. And that is what clause 43.4 regulates. Then also just noting there was another quote in, in, in the media whereby the fund noted that they will not pay third parties, um, that they only would like to pay um, the beneficiaries of the, of, of the benefits. And as previously noted, there's no reason to say why the, the fund cannot pay third parties with the appropriate authorization 
and with the bank verifications that can and will happen. Session does not and is not, does, is not and does not result in additional costs to the fund. This has been said numerous occasions, but also was also noted to the committee directly on the 19th of February in this year and by, by the commissioner, um, whereby he notes that the medical service providers themselves bear the costs associated with this activity. Remember, session is an act by someone who gives something. The medical service provider is the one who's giving the invoice and thus they bear the costs associated with that action. Session is not and does not violate any provisions of the Health Professions Act. So in terms of the fund is also noted that medical practitioners are prohibited from sharing their fees which is correct in terms of the ethical rules of the Health Professions Council. However, that needs to be read in context. The funds also noted that they're trying to improve issues of compliance. Now, what you'll see on your screen is an extract from the overarching ruling from the Health Professions Council in March 2003 from the Medical and Dental Professions Board, which notes specifically that it is permissible, and this is the red section, it is permissible for book debts or invoices or debtors owed by the debtor, in this case, the compensation fund, to be ceded to financial institutions other than banks. So Comsol is not a bank. They are allowed, medical practitioners are allowed in terms of the Health Professions Council and the Health Professions Act to cede book debts to a non-bank. A non now I'm gonna move over slightly to something that CA is specialized in, and that would be internal controls. See, as I've noted, 43.4 does not prohibit third parties or intermediaries or administrators. Practice managers and third parties may continue to work with the fund that has not been prohibited in any way. And the fund has noted, and I agree with it, that sufficient appropriate authorization should always be obtained when interacting with the fund. 100% agree. So to put it in diagrammatical form again, the blue lines which work from left to right note that the engine employee deals with the medical service provider, deals with the administrator, who deals with the fund. That flow is unaffected by clause 43.4. However, the fund clearly does have some issues that it needs to deal with. As noted in the SEER, they note that there's an issue with fraud and corruption, and these need to be addressed. But these should not be addressed in the legislative amendments. These need to be addressed through a system of well-established preventative, detective, and corrective internal controls. They need a strong control environment with general and application controls. For those of you who are not aware, a general control is an organizational control, whereas an application control would relate specifically to a system. So for instance, CompEasy, which runs on the SAP backbone. I'm not sure how many of the committee have uh, had the privilege or the honor of working through the 2020 annual report um, this information I could not find publicly available. Um, I approached SCOPA and I approached National Treasury in order to obtain it. Um, I obtained it earlier um, this year, uh, or actually a few weeks ago. Um, it was signed off in December. And if any of the committee members have not had a chance to go through um, the annual report, I would highly recommend working through it uh, prior to making this decision. Unfortunately, the fund received another disclaimer of opinion um, and there's numerous uh, mentions of control weaknesses and a poor control environment within the fund. The fund has published its 2021 and 2022 annual performance plan, which I do not believe has been presented to the committee again. 
And one of the specific items noted in the SWOT analysis under weaknesses is the weak control environment at the fund. So just to repeat, there are risks at the fund and the fund can comment on that and that's for them to, to work through as they are the closest to that. However, this is not to be dealt with in a legislative amendment. These are risks, these are internal and external risks which are dealt with in a manner and in, in consistent with industry practice to be able to work through preventative, detective and corrective controls. So what are the legal impacts of session and clause 43.4? Simply put, clause 43.4 prevents the ownership and transfer of disposal of invoices, which I believe to be unconstitutional and will be dealt with by my colleague Marika in a few minutes. But it also prevents legal action from being instituted against the compensation fund by third party aggregators, like Comsol. So here's the picture. A single party, Comsol, with specialist administrative experience, attempting to claim back monies from the compensation fund or receive payment rather from the compensation fund for invoices at the own versus thousands of doctors diverting time away from seeing patients in order to having to secure monies for services already rendered. So in closing, here is the same diagram that you saw a few minutes ago, but without the blue lines. You see I've removed the operational flows because those flows are unaffected by 43.4. The only items affected by clause 43.4 is whereby the sessionary, not the administrator, and I would encourage the committee on all the hearings going forward to use the correct terminology. The sessionary is the person who actually takes over the debt they pre-fund or pay the medical provider upfront for their purchase of the invoice, and then they receive payment for invoices purchased. Thank you very much for the committee's time. I'm now going to hand over to my colleague Marika, who's going to deal with the constitutionality and legality matters. You can just give us a few seconds. We just want to shift some chairs around. Thank you, Marika. Good morning, Honourable Chairperson and members. Um, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to talk to you regarding specifically Clause 434, uh, the constitutionality and legality, um, how we see fit. It is our contention that Clause 434 violates at least the following three constitutional rights. First of all, the right to property in terms of Section 25. Second, the right to freedom of trade, occupation and profession in terms of Section 22. And lastly, the, the right of access to courts in terms of Section 34. The right to property in terms of Section 25.2 reads that no one may be deprived, deprived of property except in terms of law of general application and no law may permit arbitrary deprivation of property. So with us, it is the medical invoice or the accounts are the lifeblood of any practice. So normally one would associate the property with a car or a TV or a house, but with medical service providers, it is the invoices and accounts for services that's rendered. So these invoices are the surety required by financial institutions to secure working capital or else known as cash flow. This is very much similar to using your house as collateral to obtain a bond. So clause 43.4 intends to prevent medical service providers to use their invoices as collateral for financing of working capital. And this directly infringes on the right to property. Clause 43.4 and furthermore intends to abolish session with retroactive effect, 
This means that it retrieves them of finances already secured and for services they've already rendered. There's no clear sufficient reason board for clause 434 that can rationalize why medical service providers may be deprived of their property or the ability to transact with it. No public interest has credibly been proven to justify limiting medical service providers' right to property. Case law found that an appropriate relationship must be found with all new legislation between the rational public purpose it wishes to serve versus the public harm. If this, is, if this appropriate relationship cannot be found, it is arbitrary deprivation and unconstitutional, which is our contention in terms of Clause 434. The idea is not to protect private property from all state interference, but rather to safeguard it from illegitimate and unfair state interference. I'd like to move on to the second constitutional right in terms of section 22. Every citizen has the right to choose their trade, occupation or profession freely. The practice of a trade, occupation or profession may be regulated by law. Clause 434 intends to limit the medical service provider and what they may do with the medical accounts for service they've already rendered. They purport to govern and control the economic rights of a medical service provider. Section 22 and all other constitutional rights may be limited in terms of Section 36 of the Constitution if it's reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society. I've included Section 36, but will not read through it. But it sets out on what grounds and what circumstances a Bill of Rights may be limited. The justifications brought to date and what we could find in terms of Clause 43.4 is, first of all, to eliminate having to deal with third parties. As my colleague has clearly shown out, that it will not eliminate having to deal with administrations and intermediaries, as, it may, as they may represent doctors and other healthcare professionals. Secondly, the justifications have brought forth that it's third-party sessions cause increased risk or fraud, but no fraud has been proven or prosecuted against any of the third-party sessions. And lastly, that it's, in the pub, that it's justified because it's in the public and the fund's interest but no public interest has proven in any way and limited stakeholder engagement, which is clearly shown from the, the, the CR that's shown by my colleague and the lack of consultations with the medical sector, as well as with the uh, third party sessions. It is our view that there's no justification for the limitation of section 22. There are less restrictive measures that can be put in place, which was dealt with by as in our written submission and no legitimate connection can be found between the purpose identified in the bill and the prohibition of session of medical accounts. It is therefore, in our view, not rational and it's clearly irrational. Lastly is the right of access to court in terms of 36, uh, 34. Everyone has the right to have any dispute that can be resolved by the application of law decided in a fair public hearing before a court or where appropriate, another independent and impartial tribunal or forum. Clause 43.4 will prevent medical account sessionaries such as herself to access the court. This will result in the fund no longer being held judicially accountable, which is not in the public interest. Legal challenges are important as they create pressure on all parties in, in the value chain, either from a contractual perspective, as is in our case with medical account sessionaries, or from a constitutional mandate and legal obligations, as is the case with the compensation fund. Nothing has been proven to be in the public interest. No rationale has been found for Clause 43.4, and therefore there's no justification for the limitation of constitutional rights. 
I will hand over to Fritz for the closing. Thank you very much, Marika. Dear honorable members, just in short a summary, we can see that should clause 43.4 be promulgated, there will be no benefits to the majority of stakeholders, the employers, the injured workers, the unions, medical service providers, professional associations, etc., etc. And the only vague reason that we could actually establish is that it would prevent the aggregate legal action to, help, to hold the fund accountable for its legal mandate in terms of COIDA. On the other hand, if, we, if clause 43.4 is removed and not promulgated, there is a whole host of benefits on both sides of the equation. So honorable members, please do the right thing for our country and its people and remove clause 43.4 from the bill. We thank you. Thank you, honorable members. I just want to, I just want the gentleman who make a presentation about what was not, what was not presented in front of the committee. Can you repeat that? Yes, ma'am. Um, can I just share the slide at the same time, if that's okay? <clears throat> want to get get to it quickly so if you can just give me a few seconds just to get to the right place there we go so ma'am just to clarify um clause 43.4 specifically was not included in the department's presentation to the committee on the 4th of november there was a discussion briefly around it. However, it, it, it resulted in a statement made relating to section 74 and not 73.4, which will be the new section if clause 43.4 is introduced. Madam Chair might remember that we did engage on this afterwards via email and via phone, noting around the concerns where the members were clear that it was, we were referring, there was a reference made to section 74 versus section 73.4 what I would have liked to bring to the committee's attention. Claiming that you, you, you phoned members, you communicated with the- No, no, no ma'am, you, you, you called me. I, I emailed the, the, the chairperson and the committee secretary um, in relation to this. And later that evening, you phoned me directly, ma'am phoned you and said what? I'm sorry for the dialogue because- No, that's not, not a problem. You, you mentioned to me that uh, on the evening of that the conversation that there would be an additional presentation by the committee which would include clause 43.4. Um, however, that to my best of my knowledge has not taken place because that was my concern at the time is that given the gravity of the situation and the, the extent at which this clause does impact the economy as a whole, um, that it was not presented specifically to the committee, 
And so that was my question to you. And you noted to me that there would be an additional presentation in the well, There would be this consideration and that we would be afforded the opportunity to put it to the committee, but that you were also hoping that there would be an additional presentation by the department. No, 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 no. I said, if there is something that you have picked up on the, in the bill, if you are not comfortable with, if you want to object or agree, processes of parliament is that you make a, a written submission or an oral submission. It had nothing to do with the issue of, of an, an, that will then be added in the committee, but let's leave it there. I want us to leave it there because I really wanted to, 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 to recall and in terms of the issues of the bill, one thing that I do, I, I can't give an impression outside what then the committee has then, what, what was then presented in the committee. Honorable members, there is the, I see their hands. There's one hand for now, one hand for now. Two, three. Okay, Honorable Cado, Honorable Dana, and Honorable Baker. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you to the presenters for the insights into your challenges in dealing with the compensation fund. You paint a very disturbing picture indeed, and I can see how the inclusion of section 43.4 would prevent you from getting your pound of flesh out of the fund. I wanted to know how many active legal cases Comsol currently has against the fund and what the combined value of the claims in dispute is, and what would become of those claims in the event that section 43.4 is signed into law. Then secondly, uh, you weren't consulted on the socio-economic impact assessment assessment, which I agree is poor form. Uh, you've given can us... Have, can, we, can they respond on that? I'm just busy with another question. Was my first question clear to the presenters? Thank you. Okay, the second question then, let me start again. You weren't consulted on the socio-economic uh, impact assessment, which I agree is poor form. Uh, you've, you've given us detailed insights into the legal and constitutional implications of section 43.4 being included, but I wanted you to elaborate in very broad brushstroke terms on what the overall socioeconomic impact of the bill in totality would be, not just 43.4. Thank you. Honorable Dana. Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you for the insightful presentation. Um, Honorable Carter has covered my first question with his first question. I would just like to add to that question. Do you plan to approach the court if Section 43.4 um, is amended as proposed in the current um, amendment bill? And then secondly, what in your opinion would the legal repercussions be for the fund and in effect the department if section 43.4 is indeed amended as proposed? And then maybe just shortly my third question, and I, I, I think I asked this to Coidlink as well, the fund and the department um, 
repeatedly demonizes third-party administrators like yourselves, often blaming them for the shortcomings and problems at the, at the fund. Um, and the DG is on record stating that in many cases, third-party administrators appoint ex-compensation fund employees who know the loopholes and how to manipulate the system. And also that the complaints about the comp-easy system is because it has closed the taps um, to prevent third-party administrators taking advantage of the system. So I would just like to know what your comments and your opinion is on that. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Honourable Begram. Thank you, Chair. I appreciate it. I um, think this has been a fantastic presentation and a real eye-opener, so thank you very much for it. Um, there was a wonderful slide. I'm not sure who it was. It showed it that at the end of the day, the fund doesn't, it doesn't cost the fund anything extra, nothing at all, and that the patient loses nothing. And I think I need to underline that. If you could answer that again, that the reality is, and this seems to have been a fear from the department and seems to be in a fear from the committee that the patient would lose out and that the fund would somehow lose out. But it appears very strongly from your structure that the only person who loses a bit is the actual service provider, the doctor or the hospital or whatever. And if you could underline that for me, because I think we need to understand it fully. Um, you also said that you are handling yourselves as, as one of the one of the third parties, 5,000 professionals. Uh, if you can't provide the service, if it gets closed, how many of those professionals have indicated to you or have you done any exercise uh, would they stop dealing with compensation fund patients? Uh, because that's the real fear, that the actual patient, the worker, is not going to get the service, and that would put pressure on the public hospitals. And maybe you can comment on that, on how much pressure it would put on the public medical service. Um, you factored, you said a figure of almost, I think it was four and a half billion rand. Um, if that wasn't done, um, what, what is your comments on what would have happened to the practices in the past? Would they have been able to survive? Um, I know that you also said that you employ over 400 staff, mostly in the Eastern Cape. If you had this go through, I presume you'd have to retrench them. Maybe you can comment on that. Um, you also made a comment about 180 million rand where claims couldn't be registered for spurious reasons. Um, have you done a proper survey of this and sent it through to the department and asked them for a comment on that, because I think the department deserves to at least have the opportunity to comment on that 180 million rand um, in essence. Now, we know that when you want to change legislation, and we, we spoke a bit about the, the legal implication, when you want to change legislation, you change it because you want to make it more efficient or you want to get rid of an evil. Now, you've shown to us today that the efficiency is purely the department's inefficiency, is the, purely the department's um, comp-easy system or whatever they call it. Um, and it doesn't appear to be any evil that they're trying to get rid of. Um, it does appear, and maybe you can comment on this, is, and let's be blunt, they purely want to avoid litigation. They, in other words, they want to be inefficient but at the same time, not taken to task on it. So maybe you want to comment on that. Uh, also, it appears to me, and your, your legal person didn't go through that, but 
the legislation seems to want to make this amendment retrospective. Now, I'm not sure if in law you can make something like this. In fact, my scant legal knowledge uh, from uh, 40 years ago uh, says that you can't retrospectively make something null and void um, unless it was, unless it was uh, irregular in the first place. So maybe you can comment on that, um, whether there's any, anyone's done any research into retrospective legislation. And then finally, you said about um, there doesn't appear to have been anyone held to task for committing fraud. Um, has any third party ever been pointed out to have been committing fraud, um, especially those that are factoring? Um, has there been anything like that? And the department keeps saying that they want to get rid of the fraud. Um, have you got any information at all um, about any fraud that was committed? And then I just finally thank you for this. And the, to, in essence, my whole discussion with you is, it looks like the department wants to avoid being sued for their wrongdoing. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate getting time to make that comment. Uh, uh, can you please, uh, can a gentleman from Comsel, respond? Jay, can you just give us a few seconds? There were a lot of questions asked, and so we just want to make sure that we don't jump around. Um, so we just want to coordinate who's going to answer what questions because there were a lot of questions. I have two pages worth of notes. Yeah. But please, can you, because remember that you must not eat on the next presenter's time. So I would have thought by now you may have... Uh, please. All right, I, I think we'll, we'll just swap between us. Um, if I can answer the uh, first question of Honourable Cardo, the active legal cases at the moment, there's 18 and that uh, consists of around about 85 million rands of, uh, that's already in the court process. As far as the social impact overall, I, I hope I understand or understood the question correctly. For us it would obviously be quite dire um, in the sense that we will lose our biggest asset, which is about 700 million rands worth of invoices that we've paid for, that we bought and that we own. And obviously, there will be a ripple effect down the line back to the service providers uh, in the sense that they will then have to take their invoices back and they have to refund us and then they have to start the legal fight uh, on their own with the compensation fund to get their accounts paid. As far as Honorable Denner is concerned, um, we... What is our approach to court? What did they say with approach to court? Uh, if you... The legal implications, all right here, the legal implications of um, approaching the courts, yes, if it goes through, without a doubt, we'll have to proceed in order to protect um, not only our assets, but also the whole medical fraternity and the injury on duty patients. That's depending on our involvement to make sure the process actually works. And as I indicated to you, the numbers are staggering in terms of the patients and in employers that we serve and that we assist in getting the claims through the system. One thing that, is, that one must keep in mind is that that 180 million that's sitting there not registered is a problem with a software system. Those accounts is gonna move nowhere, but at the same time, the patient is not gonna move their claim to compensation to a wheelchair, to a prosthesis, 
to funeral benefits, whatever the case might be, is not going to move it forward. The employers are not going to get paid. So the, the ripple effect of removing us as sessionaries out the system is going to be vast. It could lead to a massive collapse at the compensation fund. And especially the, the, the very um, vulnerable in our society, those who have already suffered the trauma of an injury, they now are going to sit without help. It's not going to happen from the fund side. We've got enough evidence, practical experience of call centers that doesn't answer, labor centers that doesn't pitch, emails that doesn't get responded to, promises made at meetings, nothing happens. It, it's a problem. You, to deal with a fund is a massive, massive problem. Uh, the last question from Honorable Denner is, what is the close the taps I've got here? Um, the concerns that the fund oh, yeah. system would close the taps on the hiring of prior fund employees. Yeah, that is called the, the prior fund employees. I don't actually see the relevance of that because everybody that signs onto the system um, has got passwords and user credentials. And not anybody can just nilly-willy go onto a website and then access the system. So I can't see actually what the, the benefit would be to have them. Um, we, we hired some of their ex-employees many, many moons ago. Um, I think the last one was probably hired, um, I don't know, back in 2002, if I refer correctly. I mean, there's just no way that that has got an impact or an influence anywhere anymore. Then as far as Honorable Bagrin is concerned, um, it is correct that the 5,000 service providers, that's individual uh, doctors and radiologists and hospitals, etc. Um, so of that 1,800 practices is actually what we're dealing with. And of them, many of them see as many as 80 to 90% IOD cases only. You can imagine if we um, are not no longer available to assist them or to pre-fund their practices, that cash flow will dry up and they will certainly go out of business. And I can't give you the exact number on a background in terms of how many will go out of business. <laughs> I'm unfortunately not uh, clairvoyant, but it is a substantial amount of letters that we have as from support against this clause from our service providers stating unequivocally that they will either go out of business or they'll have to stop seeing and they will have to um, regenerate their practices by seeing paying clients. Now, you are quite right to say that if this is promulgated, the 438 staff, and it's ever growing in a very deprived financial area of the Eastern Cape, it's going to be a negative impact. I agree with you. Um, we will have to retrain staff. The, the 180 million um, I have addressed um, in the sense that um, the severity of that not being able to get into the system. But I can tell you that we have had tens, if not hundreds of projects with the fund. Local offices, uh, Pretoria offices, I'll, I'll just give you one example very recently. About a month ago, we had a, a video conference with senior staff from the fund about this 180 million specifically and why we can't get it into the system, why they don't register and give us invoice uh, claim numbers and why they don't adjudicate on claims. And the decision was made 
that we're going to send them 200 sample um, cases in what in incidents, not invoices. It's a case. It's a claim. And of that 200, it's now a month later. That was, and in the total of that 108, I just want to say is 60, just over 62,000 individual claims that hasn't been registered. So 62,000 injured employees claim going nowhere. So the 200 that we've submitted to them um, about four weeks ago, until the day before yesterday, only six of them were in fact registered. Four weeks, only six. Special effort, special team, authorized by a senior official, overseen by a senior official at the fund. That is the, that is the extent of the problem, is you can't move forward with the fund. Retrospective in terms of the legal, um, I'll leave it to Marika to quickly talk about that. And then um, no third party has ever been taken to task in terms of fraud. That is correct. I've stated that in my presentation. As far as we're aware, the only uh, prosecution ever done to a third party was a non-sessionary third party. And I by no means say that any administrative third party is committing fraud. All I'm saying is that's the only one that was in fact prosecuted and successfully prosecuted. I think that deals with most of them. Um, Marika, can you perhaps just... I'm just going to add to add to some of the things that you've said. Sure. Um, just to provide some additional information on that, um, to answer the okay. question, if you look in our written submission um, in Annex Shed B, um, there is reference made to the third party uh, administrator only, non-sessionary, so the administrator, uh, who uh, was convicted of, of fraud by the fund. Um, I do not mention names on publicly available information, but that, that is as part of our written submission. And then also just to, to refer to some of the questions that were made. And I'd like to, to reiterate what I did in my part of my presentation to the committee, is understanding the difference between closing the taps on the administration and the administrators versus the sessionaries with the funders. When you change the systems, the application systems, that changes the controls and the processes that need to happen. That affects the administrator, not the person funding. If you go to your bank and ask them to fund these, if you go to Standard Bank or Ned Bank or one of the banks, they're going to be unaffected by changes to the funds administration system. Those will affect the administrators. Clause 43 is specifically relating to the financing or the session of medical accounts. Marika. Um, Honourable Bagram, um, I'd just like to answer to you. I think we've covered most of the questions so far, so I'd just like to cover the, the last question with regards to the retrospective. So um, it does, it, it, it is allowable in terms of certain uh, areas to have retroactive effect. Um, I know it's certainly allowable in terms of the tax sector. Um, however, we are of contention that this specific, in the context of how it is introduced, that it's unconstitutional. So I hope that answers your question. And I'll have to butt in quickly. Sorry, just on the, on, the tax, on the tax item. And the one matter that I think it's important to understand from the committee's perspective is that 
The reason it is seen as permissible from a tax legislation perspective is that it is announced by the Minister of Finance in their budget speech and it is provided to the public in the budget consultation documentation. So the fact that the tax acts are promulgated generally in November and December of the year that the budget speech announces does not in fact make it retroactive. It is retrospective to the date of the budget speech. However, retroactive legislation effectively amends actions and opportunities that you had no opportunity to actually change yourself. So in our case, whether the, the clause refers to agreements that exist as at the date, we're unable to change agreements that have been signed in the past. And by including the section in the Act as you have got it now, it would be retroactive, which is not allowed. I will, I will request you because I must, I must listen to you. I want to, uh, the gentleman, did I hear you correctly when you said you, you, you came and make a presentation in the committee? Did I, did I understand you? Did I hear you correctly? I've unfortunately never been invited by the committee to, to make a presentation. I would, we are, I guess we would, we would love to be able to be invited as mentioned by the, the committee chairperson previously to make a presentation specifically relating to the operational matters at the fund, um, especially considering that it affects the administration side um, of, of, the, of the compensation fund. But no, I was, I, was, I was trying to understand what were you saying by, the, by the, the, what, was, what you presented or were you saying what was presented in the committee? But obviously I'm, I, I just wanted to check because I don't remember you coming uh, to the to make any presentation in the committee, so I wanted to be clear about that. No, if you say my my clarity, if you say there is poorly trained staff in the compensation fund, at which level are you referring to? Can you clarify that? Uh, she wants to know about the poor training. So we're noting that there's poor training. Oh, the poor training, yes. As in my example that I cited earlier, uh, Honorable Chair, we can see from the rejection error uh, codes that we get back. For instance, in my example, I mentioned that the assessor or the staff member at the fund who assesses a specific medical account rejects the payment of that account because there is... For instance, in the example I cited, um, no uh, pre-authorization available. <clears throat> but we are in possession of that pre-authorization. We've got it. It was issued by the fund. It is for some reason or another, that staff member did not look at it, didn't know where to look, um, couldn't find it, or didn't bother to. We don't know. All we know is that it's on the system, it should be available, and because it is, for instance, an auditor's, profitist's um, pre-authorization, it is standard practice to make sure that there is or there isn't a pre-authorization on file. So that's why we say staff members are lacking the ability to understand where to go on the system to find the information that is required to correctly assess an account before they invalidly reject such accounts. So do you think it's correct to paint all members of the staff, of the staff, because if you talk about the staff, you are starting from the commissioner right down. 
Do you think it's, it's, it's really correct to paint everything with one brush? Secondly, I'm specific, I specifically wanted to check at which level. Is it at a local level or is it at a, a, a head office level? Remember, because we really want to, to get that clarity. I'm asking that because there are labor centers in each town in, 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 in all provinces, but we do have a head office which is in Pretoria. So that's why my question is, which level do you, you, you pick up that staff is poorly trained? Ma'am, I'm afraid to be brutally honest, it's on all levels, um, but not all staff. And if you remember where I indicated the labor centers table, um, I actually mentioned at the bottom there that even the best employees cannot work with a broken system. It is unfair to project the problems that we face every day on the staff alone. The majority, 75% is what I said, of the problems uh, exist because of the system that in the first place is, is actually not an emergency medical system. It was designed to be an asset-based um, short-term insurance system that the fund is trying to bend into shape for medical purposes. So it doesn't, it doesn't help us to, to point to a particular staff member, but as I showed on that table, there is a difference between the various labor centers in terms of the debtors' days. Some of them are less bad than others. Okay, when were you established? Can I pick up which year were you established as the company? 1999. 1999. Oh, okay. Thank you. Honorable Nonsele, I see your hand is up. Thank, thank you, Honorable Chairperson. Uh, good, 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 good day to members, to members of the of the committee. The Presentation which is, has been made by a uh, council uh, is noted, but I just wanted to check uh, from council presenters on, but in particular with the area that you engage in, whether, for instance, uh, the members or the council has uh, taken the matters that they are raising relating to performance, relating to challenges with the system directly with the department. Because the point here is that <clears throat> uh, the presentation seemed to be almost uh, made burdensome by issues that uh, Comsol should have taken directly with the department. And we do not get uh, feedback from them to say what perhaps could have been uh, the response of the department now that they have raised it. Can we get a response on that? Thank you, Chair. Yes, thank you, Honourable Member, for raising that. Um, I have in my hand here a, a document. It's the printed copy of um, a docu an, an electronic document that we've started compiling way back last year and that we take screen prints, it's probably not as clear, of the fund's own system, the CompEasy system, with detailed explanations of all the errors. There's 48 pages to date of errors and you can go through all of them. It's screen prints 
of the COMP-EZ system. It's been submitted over and over and over again from the highest authority, the commissioner himself, to the operational staff. And we're still battling with these problems and new ones that has arisen since, like I explained in terms of the incorrect rejections. It is unbelievably problematic to negotiate an invoice or a claim through the COMP-EZ system. I hope that answers the question. Okay. That, was, that's, was that's it, is it a follow-up, Honorable Nonsel? Yes. Because, yes. my, 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 my major concern is that the presentation with regard to the amendments on the bill, the area of concern, uh, seem to be playing a lesser role on the presentation by Comsor. And the major issues are about the day-to-day -day functioning of the, of, the, of, the, of the department, which is an issue that is important, but not necessarily uh, critical to deal with the issue at hand, which is the amendment. Hence, I'm raising the question. Yeah, because most of the time that we have taken here deal with peripheral issues that can be dealt with at a, at, at a particular level. And the issue at hand here is the submission on the amendment, which we should all be preoccupied uh, with and be dealing with. So I think the, that's a question I'm concerned about and which I hope comes on uh, uh, take into account. Thank you, Chair. If I may respond, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Nonsele. Do you, okay, it should be fine. Yes. Uh, yes, thanks, Honorable Member, for that question. I think we had to put everything in perspective. What we're trying to indicate by telling what is the day-to-day -day operational problems is to indicate what will happen if sessionaries are removed out of the system. Then individual service providers will have to deal with what we are dealing now individually. So we have, for instance, I don't know, 200 physiotherapists. If one a regulation or tariff changes, 200 individual physiotherapists doesn't have to be consulted by the fund. They, that information is disseminated to us, to our clients. We then understand how to proceed with that new regulation going forward. So it's not a matter of to try and overshadow the Honourable Committee in terms of operations. It's to put into perspective how important it is to remove clause 43 from the bill in order to preserve this that is actually supplying the medical practices with working capital to sustain them and to make them willing participants in the process. Thank you. Okay, thank you. My last, very last question for myself. So are you, am I correct? I just want to get clarity from you and your understanding of the amendment in particular 43, clause 43 is that it will, it will have effects that will make you to the third parties to close shop and you close shop and it will be the end of the, is it end of your business, of, of business. Is it, is it, is it what you are, what you are, what, what is, is, is entailed in, if I can get clarity. Is it what you are trying to put across us that if 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 clause for clause forty three goes through, that will then be the if the, the 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 impact? 
not quite in isolation, uh, Honourable Chair. We have two sides to the business. The administration, as uh, Craig has pointed out, there's no change there. That keeps on doing as we're doing now. So the administration is not affected. What is infected, uh, affected is the fact that our service providers, our clients, will no longer have the working capital to proceed running their practices. That's the thing that the, that the bill is going to eliminate. Okay, thank you very much for your, for your presentation. And uh, yeah, I, we will deliberate at our time as the committee. Now we will getting clarities and, and making to understand your areas of rejection. But yeah, thank you very much. You may look if you want to remain, if you want to, if you want to look out, it's all up to you. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Mr. Sakaza, can we get the next uh, presenter? Thank you, Honorable Chair. The next presentation should come from Socioeconomic Rights Institute, SERI. Uh, I see Ms. Kilebuchile Kuno and Ms. Lauren Royston have been given the uh, rights to can share their, their presentation, Chair. SERI should go over. Thank you, Chair. Over to you, Ms. Kuno. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you to the honorable members of the committee for giving us the opportunity to present our submission today. Uh, my name is Gilebukhile Kuno. I am a researcher at the Socioeconomic Rights Institute of South Africa, SERI. I am joined by my colleague, Tulani Nkosi, who is an attorney at our organization, and Lauren Royston, acting director of research and advocacy. The focus of our presentation is on the subject of the inclusion of domestic workers in the Compensation for Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act. I first want to acknowledge the contribution of the South African Domestic Service and Allied Workers Union, SATSAO, United Domestic Workers of South Africa, UDWOSA, and other allied organizations in advocating for the inclusion of domestic workers in COIDA for decades. The inclusion of domestic workers is a key element in the fight against poverty and the promotion of gender equality. I would like to dedicate this oral submission to the domestic workers of South Africa, whose contribution to the country goes unrecognized, who make it possible for millions of South Africans to lead productive lives with the full knowledge that our homes and our children are taken care of. And finally, I would like to dedicate this presentation to Mayor Maria Mahlangu, whose tragic death at her employer's home in March of 2012 set in motion the Mahlangu matter. May her soul rest in peace. I will begin my presentation by providing some background about SERI and our work uh, with domestic workers. I will then briefly talk about the context of the inclusion of domestic workers in COIDA and the Mahlangu case. After that, I will provide comments on specific sections of the bill. I'll follow this up by a conversation on the key challenges um, due to the nature of, the, of domestic work and the sector, which stand in the way of realizing domestic workers' rights. And lastly, I will end by providing recommendations. 
So SERI is a registered nonprofit organization and public interest law clinic that provides professional, dedicated, and expert socioeconomic rights assistance to individuals, communities, community-based organizations, and social movements in South Africa. SERI conducts applied legal research, litigates in the public interest, facilitates civil society mobilization and coordination, and provides training to communities. One of, one of our thematic areas is called making a living. And this area focuses on informal and precarious work and livelihoods. Over the last three years at SERI, we have conducted research and advocacy on domestic worker issues, collaborating very closely with SATSAO, um, United Domestic Workers of South Africa, UDOSA, and ISU Domestic Workers Alliance. SERI represented Sylvia Matlangu and Satsau in Matlangu versus the Minister of Labor, which culminated in a groundbreaking judgment from the Constitutional Court of South Africa. As we now all know, on the 19th of November, 2020, the court handed down an order declaring the constitutional invalidity of section one, subsection 19, paragraph five of COIDA, which excluded domestic workers employed in private household, households from the definition of employee, precluding, precluding them from claiming from the compensation fund for work-related injuries, diseases, or death. The court also ruled that the order of constitutional invalidity is to have immediate and retrospective effect from 27 April, 1994. Before I discuss the implications of the judgment on specific sections of the bill, I will provide a brief overview of the struggle for the inclusion of domestic workers in COIDA. The exclusion of domestic workers from COIDA has been a grave injustice to workers and their families and is considered a blight with respect to our achievements relating to labor rights at the turn of the democratic era. Contrary to popular opinion, domestic work is prone to accidents and injuries. In a report commissioned by Solidarity Center, interview respondents reported injuries and ailments such as dog bites, back injuries, broken limbs, cuts, and bone fractures. The extension of COIDA to domestic workers, a workforce which is highly subject to discrimination is a move in the right direction and is something that will provide relief for millions of workers. We therefore welcome and commend the Department of Employment um, and Labor's amendment of section one of COIDA to include domestic workers. We also welcome the notice on the registration of domestic worker employers issued by the Compensation Commissioner in February of this year and the plans of the department to promote registrations amongst employers through educational campaigns. Although the current amendment bill has proposed the inclusion of domestic workers in the definition of employee in section one, it does not yet give full effect to the Matlanku judgment which ruled that the constitutional invalidity in section one is to have immediate and retrospective effect from, two, from 27 April, 1994. The implications of this part of the order or the second part of the order for domestic workers is crucial. Those domestic workers and their dependents who have experienced work-related injuries, diseases and death as far back as 27 April, 1994 are also now able to submit their claims. In December, 
in acting in the interest of our client, Sylvia Mahlangu, Seri submitted a retrospective claim for compensation for the death of Maria Mahlangu. The process has revealed problems in sections of the act which make processing Mahlangu's claim or any other retrospective claim impossible. So our interest in the amendment bill is to ensure that domestic workers as a class of employees are sufficiently protected and that the constitutional court judgment on in Mahlangu versus the Minister of Labor is fully complied with. So in the rest of the presentation, I will begin by providing comments on these specific sections, namely section 38, 39, 41, and 44, which do not allow for retrospective claims from domestic workers to be processed. I will then provide comments on the interrelated challenges affecting the realization of domestic worker rights, namely widespread non-compliance from employers and the challenge of enforcement. And lastly, I will provide a list of recommendations. So on the specific sections. So from our perspective, sections 38, 39, 41, and 44 present obstacles when it comes to retrospective claims. So I'll speak to each of these sections. Section 38, entitled Notice of Accident by Employee to Employer. As the title suggests, Section 38 requires employees to file verbally or in writing reports of occupational accidents or injuries to their employers. It also says that notice of the accident may also be given to the compensation. In the office of the GCFO, which is located in the executive. Sorry about that. So let me start again. Um, as the title of Section 38 suggests, um, the section requires employees to file verbally or in writing reports of occupational accidents or injuries to their employers. And it also states that the notice of the accident may also be given to the, com to the commissioner. Although it further states that failure to give notice to an employer does not bar a right to compensation, to benefit from this, an employee must show that the employer had knowledge of the accident from any other source at or about the time of the accident. It is therefore clear that the scheme of Section 38 requires employees to file the first report of an accident to the employer, failing which and where the employee is not able to provide exceptions justifying the failure, his or her claim may be rejected. We submit that section 38 requires some reconsideration or an amendment because domestic workers as a previously excluded group are unlikely to have filed those first reports of their accidents to their employers. As it currently stands, the section will result in a situation which works to the disadvantage of domestic workers. The next section I'll look at is section 39, entitled Notice of Accident by Employer to Commissioner. Although there are proposed amendments to the section, um, other provisions which constitute the employer as a preferred party to give notice of accidents to the commissioner and the time limits that are set out for giving such notices remain intact. We submit that the scheme of the section works to disadvantage domestic workers whose employers had no duty to give notice of the accident to the commissioner as the act did not apply to domestic workers. The department should consider making a provision in section 39 to accommodate workers submitting retrospective claims whose employers are either untraceable or unwilling to lodge a claim. 
third is section 41, entitled Particulars of Claims. The difficulty with this section is that it provides for particulars of claims to be provided by employees when requested to do so. And it is clear that the kinds of particulars envisioned are medical reports and the like. It should be acknowledged that domestic workers intending to bring in retrospective claims may not be in the position to provide these sorts of particulars. We therefore submit that other forms or types of particulars to prove retrospective claims be considered. And these could include affidavits or witness testimonies. And the department should consider other types of um, particulars as well. And finally, section 44, prescription. Section 44 states that the, rights, the right to benefits in, in terms of the act will lapse if the accident is not brought to the attention of the commissioner or the employer or mutual association concerned within three years from the date of the accident. The amendment bill extends this time frame from 12 months to three years. However, the extension remains disadvantageous to, sorry, to domestic workers um, submitting retrospective claims. So in conclusion of this section, we submit that a mechanism must be put in place to enable the fund to process retrospective claims from domestic workers. The amendment bill should either be withdrawn in its entirety because the proposed amendments are wholly inadequate in dealing with retrospective claims, or a new section should be introduced in the act that would give effect to the Maslangu judgment and the subject of retrospective claims. I will expand a little bit on this when I comment in the recommendations. Um, I will now move on to the subject of challenges affecting the realization of domestic workers' rights. So when it comes to the, the rights enshrined in legislation really being felt on the ground by domestic workers, there are two challenges. The first is widespread non-compliance from employers, and the second is the challenge of enforcing the law. In the post-apartheid period, the state has sought to integrate the, the domestic worker sector in labor legislation by including domestic workers in laws like the Labor Relations Act, the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, um, and an Unemployment Insurance Act, um, amongst others. And we also have Sectoral Determination 7, which establishes the basic conditions of employment in the sector. Despite these interventions, domestic workers in South Africa continue to work under unfair working conditions, which shows us that really there is little value in having a strong legal framework and well-designed social protection schemes if employers are going to be allowed to sidestep their obligations. So employer non-compliance in the domestic sector is widespread. Um, it is therefore important to explore the nature of the sector, what characteristics facilitate um, uh, employer non-compliance and, and challenges in enforcing the law if we're going to make any headway on this issue. So I just want to read a quote from a 2016 report from the International Labour Organization on this issue. It reads, the particularities of the domestic work sector, namely the nature of the workplace, the fact that it's hidden from public scrutiny, the personal relationship of trust between employer and worker, the wide use and acceptance of informal arrangements and information deficits of both parties to the employment relationship make it quite challenging for governments to promote compliance with these laws. 
Balanced responses that include prevention, deterrence, and punishment are difficult to achieve and call for clear and adequate legislation. They call for employers' knowledge of that legislation, social acceptance of the value of domestic work, effective recognition of domestic workers' rights, measures to encourage compliance with legal requirements, and a functioning system for responding to complaints, settling disputes, and ensuring respect for the rule of law. While some progress has been made with respect to enforcement in our country, it is clear that the enforcement mechanisms that are used in other sectors, for example, labor inspector visits to a workplace are made particularly difficult due to domestic workers' workplace being in the private home. So on one hand, you have domestic workers who are entitled to protection under the law and should have access to the visits of labor inspectors at their workplaces. On the other hand, you have household members who also have the right to privacy of their home. And so there is a conflict of rights which needs to be addressed. Other challenges on the issues of non-compliance and ineffective enfor enforcement mechanisms include a, a lack of knowledge of obligations by employers and a, and a lack of administrative and enforcement capacity that has been the subject of um, many of the presentations that were heard this week. The experience of domestic workers' efforts to access unemployment insurance offers us an example of what we could expect is going to happen with this inclusion of domestic workers in COIDA. Uh, because they're very similar uh, social protection schemes. Reports state that only about 20% of domestic workers are registered for UIF. Um, this is from a report from an organization called WIGO and the Social Law Project at the University of Western Cape. Um, and these low rates of registrations basically illustrate to us that coverage of vulnerable worker groups in social protection schemes is meaningless without effective enforcement to ensure compliance. So it is reasonable to expect that employer non-compliance will be another challenge um, with respect to the inclusion of domestic workers in COIDA. And so the challenge that is before us, the challenges before the Department of Labor, the Compensation Fund and civil society organizations is developing and implementing measures for enforcement with due regard to the unique characteristics of domestic work. I will now move on to recommendations. So the first recommendation is regarding the withdrawal of the bill. Having set out the inadequacies of the bill, we submit that ideally the bill should be withdrawn in its entirety because the proposed amendments are wholly inadequate in dealing with retrospective claims. When the bill was drafted, the retrospective claim of benefits was not considered. And as a result, the bill is not aligned with the constitutional court judgment in Mahlangu. An alternative to withdrawing the bill is to introduce a new section which will deal specifically with the judgment and the subject of retrospective claims. A new section would have to satisfy several conditions um, which include the following. Claims from the category of employers who were previously excluded from COIDA, whose claims arose from 27 April 1994 to a specified date, remain valid and will be adjudicated upon in terms of the best evidence available to prove the merits of such a claim. Notwithstanding the provisions of Section 43 in the Amendment Bill, 
claims older than three years from the date of the accident are still valid if they relate to the category of employees that were previously excluded. Notwithstanding the provisions of sections 38 and 39, claims older than three years from the date of the accident relating to employees who were previously excluded um, can be lodged by the fund by said employee or an agent of the said employee or a family member of the said employee. Notwithstanding the provisions of section 39, a claim need not be lodged with the fund by the employer of the injured employee where this proves to be impossible owing to, uh, to factors such as the employer being untraceable or unwilling to um, participate in the claiming process on behalf of their employee. Further conditions which relate to you know, the, the question of proof and investigation of claims older than three years also come up. We would like to see the following conditions being fulfilled that an employee intending to bring a claim against the fund older than three years from the date of the accident will bring such a claim by lodging, by lodging it with the fund, um, the by lodging with the fund the prescribed form together with supporting documents set out in the re regulations. Upon receipt of such a claim in a prescribed form, the fund will in investigate its merits by tracing the employer and the details of the accident. No claim will be repudiated only on account of the fact that the investigation proves impossible or cumbersome. And in the case where the investigation of the claim is impossible or does prove cumbersome, the fund will host a formal inquiry in terms of which an employee will be, will be permitted to give the best evidence available, which may include the calling of a witness to give oral evidence. I'll now move on to other recommendations. We recommend that the Department of Employment and Labor promote occupational safety and health practices in the domestic work environment in accordance with the Occupational Health and Safety Act. We recommend the department to create incentives for employers of domestic workers to register and contribute to the compensation fund. And this may already be in the plans of the department and, and the fund. In addition to, to this, drawing from the experience of the UIF, we would recommend that the registration and contribution system for employers should be simplified um, as burdensome procedures could dissuade employers from complying and ultimately domestic workers will be the ones who are paying the price. We recommend that the department strengthen enforcement mechanisms in the domestic work sector by securing enough qualified labor inspectors by ensuring that their compliance orders are respected and enforced. We, on this subject, we commend the department's special innovation pilot project, which began in June of 2017 and was aimed at addressing issues in the domestic work sector. We encourage the department to build on this pilot project and other efforts which have followed it. We recommend that an internal directive within the department be sent out to all staff to educate them about how to process retrospective claims. We also recommend that retrospective claims received are monitored and the, the status of such claims is shared. A recommendation in our written submission, which has already been implemented by the fund, is to issue a directive to guide employers of domestic workers about registering. Um, 
But to add, we would recommend that the fund outline deadlines for when employers need to have registered their employees and a deadline for when an, a new employer or a new employment re relationship is, is established um, and that the fund communicate clear penalties for violations. Mm -hmm. Lastly, we recommend that the department launch uh, a public awareness campaign about the, the inclusion of domestic workers in COIDA targeted to both domestic workers and employers. This could include distri the distribution of materials. This could include um, handbooks explaining the claiming process, how to use the online services to contribute to the fund. And it should make use of mass media like television, radio, newspapers, and social media. In conclusion, we submit that a major challenge with the amendment bill as it stands is that several sections make it impossible for domestic workers in light of the constitutional court judgment to have their retrospective claims processed. And that a mechanism must be put in place to enable the fund to process retrospective claims from domestic workers. We also submit that employer non-compliance and enforcement remain significant mm -hmm. challenges and stand in the way of domestic workers enjoying this, the social protection if, if this issue, these issues are not addressed. Lastly, our recommendations in summary are that the Department of Labor should either withdraw the bill or include a new section on retrospective payments, promote occupational safety and health practices in the domestic work environment, create incentives for employers of domestic workers to register and contribute to the fund, strengthen its enforcement mechanisms in the domestic work sector, issue a directive for to guide employers of domestic workers about registering for COIDA and contributing, as well as launching a public awareness campaign about COIDA. We welcome all invitations from the department to engage further on the subject, about, on the subject specifically about retrospective claims and some of the recommendations that I have just shared. Um, I will now end my presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Ms. Kuno. Thank you very much. Uh, Honourable members, there is the presentation, and, uh, and uh, I'm inviting hands. I'm inviting hands. I see Honourable uh, Bagram is the only hand for now. Over to you, Honourable. Thank you, Madam, Madam Chair, if I may go ahead. Um, thank you. I think this was an absolutely brilliant presentation. Um, and so well done, and this is absolutely uh, superb in the sense it's made me think, I'm sure the rest of the committee are all sitting back and thinking rather deeply about all this, so thank you very much. Um, it's really made it worth our while. Um, the retrospectivity of the claims, uh, I know that you've called and you've said that maybe the department should withdraw it, I, I would strongly believe that there must be another way of doing this and that uh, it could be redrafted and you could redraft those three other clauses that you spoke about. Honorable, and I think it does call for it. Honorable Bakram, can you ask yeah. me, please? Because you are bothering in, in deliberations. Can you please ask a question to the presenter? Yeah, so I'm, I'm asking the presenter if it's possible to redraft as opposed to withdraw. That's the first thing. The second thing is my experience has been now that, in fact, the, the amendment has to a large degree become operative. 
Um, we're not waiting for the amendments to go through. The domestic workers are, in fact, trying to register right now. But the real problem is, and I don't know if you can give us any feedback on this, is that all the domestic workers I've been speaking to are having enormous difficulty tying to register. Over and above that, uh, some of the domestic workers have told me that they, it's almost impossible to claim. They can't get through and they can't somehow lodge their claims, even after they've been registered. Uh, so it's another problem. Then, I don't know if, it recall, if you recall, but uh, in some of the previous presentations, it's been difficult to get uh, the medical help that people want to get. I don't know how domestic workers are going to do that. Couldn't there be something that you could draft in the redraft of the clauses you're talking about, about getting private medical help? Uh, and it's been a nightmare even with the UIF for domestic workers. So I'm not sure it's going to be done. You spoke about education. Um, and I, I think, in reality, the education should be rolled out by the department, and maybe you can put some comment on it, both to employers and employees. Uh, the employers, invariably, that I speak to have no knowledge of this whatsoever and are not sure what to even do. And so it's just as important to get the employers on board as you would with the domestic workers. Many of the domestic workers... Um, who told me that the employers don't want to register them or fear of losing their job. Is there any way in which we could, you could comment on that? Because there's an enormous fear. The domestic workers are fearful about pushing anyone and making them register them or something like that. As you know, you also spoke about the inspectors. We've got very few inspectors in South Africa. In fact, it's so few that most of the businesses have never seen an inspector. Can you imagine if the inspectors have to start going to private households for health and safety, et cetera, talk about, I don't know, there must be a better way, and maybe you can comment on this, instead of relying on inspectors, there must be a better way of employers somehow self-regulating themselves and then somehow checking up on them. Even the unions in this sector, um, unions are not keen to be active in the sector because there's normally only one employee per business uh, registration per household and it doesn't pay the unions and maybe you can comment on that so um, with the inspectors too few the unions too weak and the department not being able to get out the education maybe you can make some comments so thank you very much for listening to me I praise you once again for an, uh, an enormous task that you've taken us through in a very short time so thank you once Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Kuno, can you please respond? Thank you, uh, Madam Chair, and thank you, Honorable Bagram, for your comments. Um, I would, yeah, I would agree with, with a lot of what um, Honorable Bagram has, has described, um, and that, you know, part of it's not just South Africa that's actually experiencing the challenges that we find in the domestic work sector in um, trying to afford domestic workers social protections. So this is not, this is a global conversation and this is a very wonderful opportunity um, with the redraft of this amendment bill to open up a conversation and identify some of the issues that will stand in the way of realizing domestic workers' rights, whether it is claiming compensation or UIF or leave days or overtime pay. Um, so just to answer Honorable Bagram's 
question about redrafting, we are in agreement that it's, it's one of those two ways. If, if um, after consultation, we see that there's an opportunity to include a new section that has this focus on retrospective claims and making them realizable, if that's even a word, we would definitely welcome that. Um, and the, the issues that um, Honorable Member is, is describing are very real. And I think one of the solutions to this is to bring in employees of domestic workers into the conversation. Because so far the conversation has been between domestic workers, unions, some civil society organizations and the department all grappling with this issue to the exclusion of this very important component of this entire situation. My understanding is that there are a lot of employers who are very well-meaning and actually want to comply. That um, the problem is that education is, is something that, that's needed. And, and therefore, I think the last recommendation that we gave on um, with respect to public awareness, I think is one that is, is quite key. Of course, all the other recommendations we, we would want to, to have implemented. But this idea of a public awareness campaign where number one, we're acknowledging the value of domestic work to all of our lives, to the economy is, is repeated time and time, is, is repeated and, made, and people are, are made aware of this truth. Um, but also um, the idea that there are a, a, there's a, a number of laws that employers need to, to comply with. Um, and that sometimes it's, not, it's actually not fair to expect domestic workers to stand up to their employers, um, begging them to, to comply, as honourable member explained, because they are in a vulnerable position. They are, you know, we're in an economic climate or in a context where um, unemployment is quite high. And so sometimes the act of trying to claim your right could lose, someone could lose their job in this process. Um, so I'll just stop there. Um, and I just want to, to um, an opportunity to my colleague to learning course to maybe respond to to that first question about the redraft whether it's possible to redraft the the bill with the permission of uh, madam chair okay is your colleague around Ms. Kuno, is your colleague? He is. I think he's ready yes. now. Yes, I'm around. I'm around, Chef. Sorry, I was unable to unmute myself. Um, so, honorable members, the position is, as we suggest, that if the bill is not withdrawn... Can we, can we see your face? Um, Thank you. So, so the position is, uh, as we suggest, that if the bill is not withdrawn, then a new section is required. A new section is required that's just going to deal and that's just going to be focused on retrospective claims. Because as we submitted that um, in the current bill, um, the issue of retrospective claims is, is not dealt with. And we fear that um, if it's not dealt with now, it will never be dealt with and domestic workers are going to have difficulties um, in putting in the, the claims that they, they, they need to put. Insofar as the other issues are surrounding the difficulties about the claiming process and the registration process, 
um, we acknowledge because currently we have put in the um, the silver Mashango case. We're having difficulties getting it processed. So we acknowledge that there are huge difficulties there. Um, but I think as Siri, we are willing and able to work collaboratively with the department to try and find solutions to these problems um, as we understand that they are real. Um, those are my contributions, Madam Chair. Thank you. No, thank you, thank you very much, uh, 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 Ms. Kuno and your colleague for the presentation. And uh, we, we are all learning, but uh, yeah, we have, we, have, we have listened to your contribution, your oral submission. You do say that you have also, uh, you do have a written uh, contribution. The committee will take into account and listen and deliberate on the on the issues that you have raised, uh, thank you very much. You may you are invited to 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 join us, uh, but you are also at liberty to log out if you do want to to do that. Can we get the next uh, presenter, Mr. Sakaza? Thank you, Chair. Uh, the next presentation now should come from Kosatu. Mr. Matthew Parks is here. You can take the committee through. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Mr. Parks. Over to you. Good, good, good afternoon. Yes, afternoon, Comrade Chair, all our members. Uh, let me just quickly share our slide quickly. Um, <clears throat> but yes, no, thanks, Chairperson, and to members for giving us time as COSATU um, just to share our views on this bill. Um, my apologies, just give me a second to get the document uploaded. Um, hopefully should it be coming through now. Yeah, I think it's coming through now, Chair. Um, so just give me one second. <laughs> Sorry, Chair, just a second. I seem to have made a small blunder with um, sharing it. Uh, let me just try one more time. Uh, hey, sorry, Chair. Maybe if, if Zolani could just share it for me so I don't delay the committee any longer, Chair. Um, Do you have it, Solani? Yes, Chair, I have it, but now I have to go and look for it because I thought Mr. Parks would be able to get it. Um, so I must go to his... Um... Sorry about that, Chairperson. Okay. Then I'll have to go to...
Uh, maybe while Zolani is sharing a chair, I can just start so long. Um, yeah, my apologies for for that. Um, there, you have it. there you have it, Mr. Parks, on the screen. Can you see it? It's okay. for you, yeah, you can see it. You can. Okay, okay. <laughs> sorry, Chair. Some of us, uh, unlike yourself, Comrade Chair, who is very young, um, some of us are born a little bit before some, some forms of technology. Um, so my apologies for that, Chair Um So, Chair, yes, uh, hopefully now it'll come right and I won't jinx it anymore. Um, should be sharing now. Yeah, okay, hopefully you can see it, Comrade Chair. Okay, my, my apologies for that. Um, so I think, Chair Lucas Cosato, we want to appreciate being given the space to to raise our views as COSATU around it. Obviously, as a trade union federation, we've got a, a major and a vested interest in the bill. Um, I want to say from the beginning, Comrade Chair, to make it very easy for members to know where COSATU is coming from. Um, we support the bill. We welcome it. We think it's a timeless and it's a correct intervention to update the, one of the most critical labor laws in the country. Um, we believe, Comrade Chair, that it's going to help strengthen the, the rights of workers and the protections um, from injury on duty and the consequences. We also think it's going to assist and ensure they have access to relief and also quite critically, Comrade Chair, and to honorable members um, to ensure rehabilitation for those who are injured and a speedy return to work um, as quickly as possible. Um, Chair, I'll go through the, our provisions of why we support the bill as COSATU in a, in a moment. But we also, Chair, in addition to our support for the bill, we do have two proposed amendments, um, not fundamental overhauls, but two proposed amendments which we think will help to further strengthen uh, the bill, specifically with ensuring workers have the right to rehabilitation, and also with regards to what we think are some necessary conditions um, when the minister grants licenses um, to funds and so forth. Chair, um, I think also just to go into the processes a bit, um, we had participated as COSATU with other labor federations with business at the engagements at NEDLEC on this bill in 2018. I think we were quite disappointed as COSATU and how long it took the bill to go from NEDLEC to cabinet and finally to parliament. Um, as members would be aware, there was a pending constitutional court case which dealt specifically with the unconstitutional exclusion of domestic workers um, by the Domestic Workers Union, which we had supported. And really this bill should have come timelessly and that case would have been unnecessary. Um, we're, we're raising this chair um, because we've repeatedly struggled as COSATU with often uh, delays in bringing progressive bills to parliament, um, to getting them through parliament. And even when parliament has adopted them for the president to assent to them and for them to be implemented by government departments. On average, our experience chair is that it takes about five years for this to happen. In the meantime, as with the exclusion of domestic workers, there are real consequences for delaying legislative amendments, for intervening on issues on the ground. Um, the UI Amendment Act, as honorable members might know, took about seven years from the departmental stages to get it implemented in law. And most of these delays, if I can be honest, are unnecessary. We're not saying that parliament or government should cut corners, should violate the constitution, we're not saying that at all, they must go through the process correctly. But it should not be taking years and years to get simple things done. Um, for example, Convention 190 on the dealing with harassment of the workplace, it was agreed to at, at, at the ILO in 2019. 
it's taken two years for us to get it tabled at Parliament finally. And so I think, Chair, for us, a plea to government colleagues, to, to Parliament, and all departments is we should be moving with much greater speed when, when workers' lives um, are, are at stake. Uh, this bill, if it had come into effect years ago, as the previous colleague has said, would have benefited hundreds of thousands of domestic workers, for example. Um, so, Chair, I think for us, we do feel there is a need to strengthen the bill in two areas. Uh, we are with uh, honorable members to prioritize this bill. We know the committee has got quite a busy schedule, but within that, we think there should be some space to ensure this uh, bill is prioritized. We're quite glad the committee is now moving with it. But of course, once Parliament does work, we'd want government to already getting its systems in gear to ensure the speedy implementation. We have seen too often, Comrade Chair, members, that when bills are passed into law by Parliament, departments take a couple of years to implement them. Um, this is quite worrying for us. It's actually quite entering, it's entering us into quite dangerous constitutional territory. Um, equally, Chair, we think there is a need for employees to embrace the progressive spirit of the bill when it comes into effect and to play their part in implementing it. Government on its own can't do everything. Um, equally, there's a need for, for government, for us as COSATO and trade unions to equally play our role, to make sure we educate and we empower workers to know their rights. Otherwise, it'll remain nice English words on paper. And of course, I think one of the most fundamental issues, Chair, and I think it was, uh, to be honest, a theme of all the presentations today, is really the need to capacitate and to modernize the compensation fund. Workers should not be struggling to submit their claims. If banks, if SARSs can operate modern, quick, efficient systems, then that really should be the fundamental task facing government compensation fund, to make sure it is a modernized institution. Workers, it's easy for them to submit their claims directly and to receive the money quickly. There should not be delays of years at a time. So, Chair, in terms of the areas of support for us as COSATO on the bill, um, there's about a dozen areas we, we are strongly supportive. I think the first one is around the issue of compensation. Um, this is a very critical progressive welcome intervention where we expand not just medical aid costs, but all medical costs. Um, the issue of the cost of attendant care allowance, the funeral costs and so forth, those are quite useful and they'll really benefit many workers, especially workers in industries and mines, etc. Um, Chair, you would know that only about 9 million South Africans out of a country of 60 million people have medical aid. Medical aid is often because of their own selfish profit motives or the exorbitant costs of the medical industry exclude many significant costs from coverage. Um, so this broader inclusion of medical costs is a progressive, it's really a welcome intervention. We think it's going to assist many workers with unforeseen costs and we should not be squeezing money out of workers when they're really struggling, when they've lost jobs or the family's lost a breadwinner, et cetera. So that's quite a, a progressive intervention. Chair, I think it's also the, the expansion and the clarification of the definition of dependence is welcome. To be honest, all the laws of our country, um, that should have been updated long ago. But nonetheless, we welcome this provision to include any form of life partners or spouses under the different uh, marital regimes or life partners living partners. I think the definitions of children, um, whether they are studying, whether they are adults, partially or fully dependent, including parents and siblings and grandparents, I think that's it's, it's a necessary modernization of the law to reflect South Africa's uh, family structures and our cultural norms. So I think that's a welcome issue. So we don't inadvertently exclude dependents, again, when they are facing huge financial difficulties. Chair, one of the most progressive parts of the bill 
is it on the domestic workers? Um, this is long overdue. Uh, as the Constitutional Court case had said, it was simply unconstitutional to exclude them from coverage before. Um, immediately, this is going to benefit almost a million domestic workers who have been excluded to date. And those are overwhelmingly, obviously, women, African and colored, so the poorest of the poor. Um, and Chair, again, if this bill had been passed into law years ago, we could have literally benefited many thousands of domestic workers. But nonetheless, this is a progressive welcome step forward, Chair. Chair, the, the provision for including post-traumatic stress disorder, um, that's a welcome update of the bill. Again, Chair, you know, this is a useful thing. Many workers in the mining industry, well, on average, one worker dies every week, more are injured. This is a progressive intervention. Um, it's going to benefit security guards, mine workers, correctional services officers, many other workers. But also, I think, importantly, Chair, is going to provide relief to, to female workers who are often subject to violence and abuse. So this is a useful intervention in the bill. Chair, equally, I think we must appreciate as COSATU the inclusion of diseases which result from the workplace. Um, it defies logic why this is not there over many years, but nonetheless, I think it's a welcome issue. And, you know, it's going to assist mine workers, for example, who are exposed to asbestos poisoning, equally for construction workers. Um, it's going to assist workers in the chemical industries who are, sub who are exposed to hazardous materials. And I think, Chair, right now, as we're all seen in a pandemic, it's going to literally ensure protection for many workers across the board. And again, this is going to provide real tangible relief um, to millions of workers and to the families, Chair. So I think we must support that. Chair, we're highlighting these positive parts because we have seen many people have come in and said this bill is a terrible bill, et cetera. And I think it's unfortunate because there are many things here which are practically going to make a difference to ordinary working class, African colored workers, to female workers, et cetera. Um, Chair, on the Compensation Fund Board, I will, we will support the provisions which provides for government representation, for employee representation, which is critical, and also for organized labor representation. Uh, we think this is a correct approach of an employer and employee representation, and these are selected by organized business and organized labor at NEDLAC. And equally, Chair, I think we must support the criteria upon which you can serve on the board, and of course, the criteria upon which you could be removed from the board for misbehavior, et cetera. Um, these are fairly straightforward and standard. Chair, we want to appreciate and welcome the no-fault rule. Um, we think the, the, the previous regime, and it's also similarly in the road accident fund, where you have a fault-based uh, principle, it's a wrong approach. Um, virtually every accident in life, someone can be blamed for it. Um, no one intends for these things to take place, and interpretation can be very uh, subject you know, to great uh, different, different views. So I think, Chair, the principle of no-fault rule is a welcome position. We should not be penalizing people for accidents. People might have lost limbs, may not be able to work again, might have suffered huge financial losses. So this no-fault rule is a fundamental one to protect workers. And again, the family should not be penalized because of something which happened at the workplace. They were not involved in it. They did not plan for it. Um, Chair, I think we also appreciate the, the point of, the, or to make, or to make the point rather, the compensation fund is there to assist workers with the medical costs, with the rehabilitation, with the reintegration. Um, it should not be used to, to punish workers, et cetera. Um, Chair, the issue of the penalties, and we know that's been an issue of significant um, attack 
And look, maybe perhaps the government wants to, to, to respond. Uh, we're not here to defend them or to speak on their behalf. Um, we think, Chair, that the, the need is there for, for, for penalties. Um, employers who don't ab abide by the law um, need to face some consequences. We don't need slaps on the wrists. Perhaps the 10% earnings might be too high. Let's negotiate and let's, let's see what is the relevant level. But there has to be something tangible um, as opposed to a slap on the wrist. We cannot afford for businesses to budget that I'll pay a few fines and I'll, in the meantime, I'll cut corners and I'll put workers' lives at risk. Um, that can't be the way. Um, there has to be a consequence for disobeying the law. There has to be actions. Every political party that we are aware of always speaks to the need for consequences for breaking the law. We're not sure why we want to be soft on employers who have a moral and a legal obligation to protect their workers, why we should not have consequences for those who blatantly break the law. Um, and we don't think the requirements are complicated. They're fair, they're rational, they're not onerous. Chair, um, on the issue of prescription, we think it's a correct approach that um, government has extended this, the, was proposing to extend the time frame to submit claims in 12 months to three years. We think that it's inclusive. It's really going to assist many workers who often at times struggle to find the paperwork for whatever reasons. So this will help to give them additional space. Um, it will also help workers, chair, who often are battling to recover. They need to focus on the physical rehabilitation. They're in hospital, they're at home injured. Um, this will give them some assistance. <clears throat> but of course, chair, um, government employees and unions will also need to play their own roles to assist in ensuring that employers and employees are aware of these provisions. Chair, I think we also want to welcome the additional six-month provisions for workers to submit objections when good cases, cause can be shown. And again, Chair, this helps because often workers struggle to, to get the required documentation. It gives them additional breathing space and so forth. Chair, on the issue of road accidents, um, we were worried about this in the beginning, but we felt that the, in the bill there is a, a correct balance, that road accidents which are occurring during the course of work would be covered by a compensation fund, but uh, to avoid double dipping, double dipping, sorry, road accidents which occur outside of the course of work would be covered by the road accident fund. We think that's a fair balance. Um, <clears throat> Chair, we know there's been a lot of noise around the issue of conditions upon lawyers. And I think, to be honest, some of the noise has not been factually based, um, including some of the media coverage and editorials. This has not banned the lawyers completely, but it's subjecting them to certain conditions and so forth. Um, ideally, first chair, we should not need lawyers. Ideally, the compensation fund should be a fully modernized, well-functioning system. Unfortunately, it's not. So there is a space for lawyers, which the bill provides for. It doesn't ban them. Um, and we appreciate that often these submissions and claims are quite complicated. Um, and of course, there is a backlog as well. Um, but I think, Chair, what we appreciate is that there's an attempt in the bill to provide limitations upon which lawyers can be paid. We've seen in the compensation fund and the road accident funds that uh, some of these lawyers are excessively profiteering the expense of claimants. In effect, they're robbing the claimants of the little money that is due to them. And of course, Chair, compensation fund, road accident fund, are funded by taxpayers, by workers. They should not be there for lawyers who are already very well off to gorge themselves. Um, so it's correct that the courts can set fees, limits upon how much lawyers can be paid. Um, that's very generous, Chair, to be honest. But we accept it as a progressive attempt to find the right balance. 
Um, so yeah, the issue of, of employers and contractors and um, subcontractors, um, I think we want to support the inclusion of these provisions to provide very clear responsibility lines between them. This is critical to show a fair balance between who is responsible, whether it's the employer or the contractor, the subcontractor. It's also quite critical, Chair, to provide protection for those workers because we have about between two and three million workers who work for contractors and subcontractors. Um, this is, we think, going to help ensure those workers don't inadvertently fall through the cracks and that whether the employer or the contractor or the subcontractor are at fault, they would be held accountable. So I think, Chair, we have to appreciate that. Ideally, if it is up to us as COSATU, we wouldn't have these uh, contractors or labor brokers, et cetera. But nonetheless, they are there, and we think this is going to help to, to address that gap. Um, equally, Chair, what's been missing here from our colleagues in, in business is how the bill actually is trying to give incentives for employers who abide by the law. Um, there's a provision in the bill which provides for incentives to employers who are in compliance with the Act, who embrace good labor practices. You know, for example, ensuring a, a safe working environment, of embracing rehabilitation of re injured workers, and ensuring that those who are injured and re rehabilitated can come back to work. Um, Chair, really, the, we need to be spending a lot more time focused on the role of employers. It's fine to bash government, and at times government is a good um, club now and then, correctly so. But look, government can't implement and ensure a safe working space. That's the role of employers. Um, and if employers are serious about boosting labor productivity, ensuring their own profit margins are achieved, they need to ensure workers have a safe working environment. That's how they're going to grow to make profit. That's how we're going to grow this economy, to save companies, to save jobs. Um, we're not in the era of Charles Dickens' chair, where we can treat workers like slaves and just throw them out the window when they get injured and so forth. So Chair, we've got two proposed amendments to the bill where we think um, they can be strengthened. Uh, one is around guaranteeing workers the right to rehabilitation. Um, the second one is around setting strict conditions for the issuing of licenses to carry on business. Well, these are not fundamental or substantive overhauls, but we think it can help to tweak them. Um, so the first one, Chair, about the right to re rehabilitation in Section 70A. So we feel the bill correctly seeks to meet South Africa's legal and constitutional obligations to ensure the rights of workers to rehabilitation, to return to work when ready. And these are outlined in the International Labour Organization Conventions, the, the United Nations Conventions, of which we are signatories to. Um, they are outlined in our constitution and, of course, the Integrated National Disability Strategy. Um, unfortunately, Chair, we've, we, are, we are fearful that certain features of the drafting of Section 78 would inadvertently if enacted, um, we feel might unintentionally undermine the clear purpose of the amendments, which is to provide for the right to rehabilitation. Um, so as presently chair right now, Section 78 gives the Compensation Fund and its licensees a discretion to provide rehabilitation rather than imposing an obligation upon them to do so. Um, Section 70A1C restricts the concept of rehabilitation to an employee returning to the previous employment of work. So if you were a, a rock driller, about returning you to that rock job you had, not about simply returning you to working at that company. Um, Chair, Section 78.2b can also be interpreted as restricting the purpose of rehabilitation to providing for the, for the employee to return to the work as an employee rather than enabling them to 
to be rehabilitated so as to perform work, whether as an employee or independent contractor or self-employed person. So our proposal chair is basically on this clause, there's two um, small but important proposed amendments to section 70A. So currently it reads as 70A1, subject to the provisions of this act, the compensation fund, um, the employee individually li is liable or licensee as the case may be. So in the bill, it says the word may. We are proposing to delete the word may, which is not an obligatory word, it's a, a voluntary word, to must. Uh, must is a compulsory word, you don't have a choice. So they must provide facilities, the services, the benefits aimed at rehabilitating employees suffering from occupational injuries or diseases to return to. Now here again, the bill says there, which means if your job was as a cashier, you return to your job as a cashier. We'd rather remove the word there and say return to work because you may not necessarily be able physically to return to your previous job, but then the employer must still be obligated to find an alternative work for you, not to retrench or dismiss you. Um, we think this, yeah, so that, that's our two proposed amendments there, to replace the word may with must to replace, to, and to simply delete the word there. Um, Chair, then the other area proposed amendments um, is on the issue of licenses, licenses to carry on the business of insurance. Um, this is in section um, 30. So the bill proposes to amend section 30 of the act to allow for the issuing of licenses to carry on the business of, of the insurance of employers against the liabilities under the act. Um, this is a very significant departure from the traditional arrangements in terms of which the compensation fund together with two mutual, associa mutual associations uh, that had been established prior to the enactment of the 1941 Workman's Compensation Act, administered insurance. So our concerns, Chair, is basically that workers' compensation is a unique form of insurance and that employees are prevented from bringing civil claim claims of any form against employees by Section 35 of the Act. Uh, the prospect we feel will now arise at a wide range of organizations, including insurance companies, will apply for licenses to insure employers in particular sectors of the economy. We are concerned, honorable members, that the experience of many workers um, is that insurance companies will reject claims wherever possible, unashamedly. They will find, they will hunt for any possible technicalities to rob workers of the little assistance they need, despite their very willingness to take the workers' funds. Um, we feel chair, such an approach is incompatible with administration workers' compensations, which is a remedial scheme. Um, Section 30.7 also states a licensee shall be accountable to the minister, uh, but does not say how the operation of a license will be supervised uh, to ensure workers receive the compensation and to ensure that claims are not inappropriately rejected. So, Chair, we believe as COSATA that licenses should only be issued to organizations subject control of a board consisting of an equal representation of employers and workers or registered trade unions. Um, this would be in line with the principles of how pension fund boards are composed, where a 50-50 arrangement of employer and employees is the principle and the norm and the requirement. We also feel, Chair, the bill needs to include provisions to ensure awarding of claims is monitored, that the rights of employees under the Act are not undermined, and they are transparent, um, that there need to be fair procedures for objections and for appeals against decisions of licensees. So Chair, our proposed amendments on this regard is basically to insert three sub additional sub-clauses. So under section 30.7, um, it reads as follows in the bill currently, 
that any licensee issued with a license in terms of this act shall be accountable to the minister. So that's already there in the bill. Um, so under clause a, uh, sub clause A, we're simply proposing to replace the full stop with a semicolon, and then to insert a new uh, sub clause or sub point B to read as follows, be under the control of a board consisting half of members representing organized labor and half of members representing business. So again, the pension fund board proposals, or principles rather, um, and also chair to insert a sub clause C, which will read as follows, comply with any conditions determined by the minister or as may be, may be prescribed. And obviously that might be prescribed in regulations, but there must be a clause empowering the minister in that regard. And then the last one chairs about a subclause D to propose that they conduct their businesses transparently and in a manner that gives full effect to the rights of employees and their dependents under this act. So chair, we feel this right now will help to provide the necessary checks and balances, provide the necessary capacitation to the minister and the department to hold those companies to account. We're fearful right now is it is an effective blank check. Um, so in conclusion, honorable chairs, um, to say again, we as COSATU and our affiliate unions, which organize in all sectors of the, of the economy, um, nearly two, two million members, we support this COIDA bill. Uh, we feel it's a progressive bill. It will assist in seeking to address the many gaps which you have seen over the years in the act. And share in practical terms, it's going to benefit millions of workers and their families. Um, it's going to provide cover to almost one million domestic workers, the most exploited and impoverished women workers. Um, we hope, Chair, that the committee would you know, consider our proposed two amendments. Um, we believe they will help to strengthen the bill to help clarify rehabilitation as a right, not as a discretionary option, and to also provide clear protection and guidelines and oversight um, for the licensing provisions. Chair, we'd want to also urge our members of parliament across party lines to defend this bill. Um, we should not be convinced by the many emotional calls to gut it, to dilute it or weaken it. This is a progressive bill, it's a needed bill, it's a rational, it's a fair bill. Um, those who want to weaken it are not addressing the issues. They, to be honest with, with members, Chair, they're seeking to prevent immoral issues. They're seeking to prevent, protect their profit margins. And these are the people who want to make a profit, a killing, out of the misery of workers who are injured. They want to take money from the compensation fund, which must actually go to the workers and to their families. But we do agree with many people who have criticized the bill and so forth, is that the bill is not the corporate. The corporate is the compensation fund. Um, it is simply inexcusable that we have a compensation fund like the UF, which is archaic, which is not modernized. But the solution there is to modernize the fund, is not to run away from progressive provisions in a bill, which actually does seek to help to address the needs of workers. Government, the Department of Labor, Treasury must assist in how can you modernize the compensation fund to make sure workers can submit their claims timelessly, they can be responded to quickly, they can get the money quickly, they cannot be frustrated by archaic systems. But delaying the bill, putting it on pause, rejecting it, that's not going to assist workers. That's just going to simply assist those who have made excessive and unfair profits on the backs of injured workers. The bill we feel is going to assist workers, is going to assist women, is going to assist domestic workers, is going to assist mine workers, security guards, their families. Um, we should not be looking for red herrings to protect ill-gotten gains from a very uh, unfortunate industry. Um, Chair, equally, if we delay the bill, we are frustrating workers. This bill has taken three years to go from NEDLAC to, 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 to Parliament. 
we would assume in a fair uh, space, it'll take parliament until the end of this year, both houses to pass the bill. That should be done. We should not be looking at ways to delay it. We can make some amendments here and there as we propose that won't delay it inadvertently or inordinately. But we also would want to see government being ready to sign it next year, early next year, and let it come into effect early next year. So I think, Chair, lastly, as we conclude, we want to urge Parliament to prioritise, to strengthen and pass this progressive bill as soon as possible. Um, we thank to, to thanks to members for giving us space, and we hope we've assisted with our contributions and our proposals, and I hope we've not taken too long a member's time. Thanks very much, Honourable Chair members. Matthew, and uh, thank you very much to Kosato for the presentation. Can, are there any comments? I'm sorry, any questions of clarity? By the looks, it's none. There are no, there are no uh, questions. Thank you very much, uh, Kosato as we will be engaged in deliberations as the committee at the appropriate time, we will look into all presentations, including yours, on, 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 on how then to take the bill forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Sakaza? Yes, Chair. The next, the next uh, presentation. Chair, the next presentation, as I mentioned, um, is, is, is only be available to Chair. So I don't know whether Chair would like to. They only, Solidarity is the last one, Chair, and they are only available. They, they are held up in another meeting now, but they said that two, they'll be here, Chair. Okay, thank you very much. We'll then now break for lunch and, and then come back at precisely five to two. Thank you, honorable members. Lunch is ready in second floor, <laughs> everybody is invited to join. Let's break for lunch. See you. They are not the only one. Very excited. Come again. I can't wait. I'm also missing the second floor, sir. <laughs> yes. Second floor is there for us to have lunch. See you at five to two. Okay, thanks, sir. Thank you. Bye. You may log out and log in using the same the same link. Yes, sir. Yes, that's correct, sir.